whilst we're at it, and thank you very much, Marcus. We'll be cycling David in. I can see that uh, Sam, Samuel has already joined us. Samuel Romani, thank you. Good evening. Good afternoon. Yeah, thank you. Good evening to you. Great to be here. All righty. Long time no speak, albeit, well, last time around, we were quite in a rush and it was an extremely funny segment. Uh, and that's hilarious given the fact that obviously the topic is unfortunately extremely serious. But there you go. As we've heard from President Zelensky, without, without the very, very keen humor and sardonic uh, mocking of uh, Mordor, we will not be able to survive this war. So how has your week been? I understand that you've also just published a book. I have to get this out of the way right from the beginning because I, it's always a big thing when you launch a book. How is it? Yeah, well, the book launch has been very good so far. It got released on the 13th. Uh, now it's uh, being shippable globally from Blackwells, which is good. So it's getting a uh, distribution where I want it to be. And uh, yeah, I'm just going to be going on tour in Europe uh, this week and then uh, on to uh, America probably in the summer. Or fall. All right. Well, uh, and probably, yeah. And then uh, hopefully traveling around, maybe in Ukraine too. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I think that would be a good idea. Get some of the same. That would be a good idea. First yeah. answer, yes, absolutely. And, but then again, uh, the book, of course, is a very topical because it all pertains exactly to what we're talking about. You want to give a quick tour around what we're up for and then we can dive into it because I could immediately talk about King Charles, my mistake earlier today our friend Yuri Inad and why he actually came out with the news. But let's start with that. Uh, what's the book about? So, yeah, the book, uh, just to give you an overview, basically uh, covers uh, a few key questions. Like, first of all, why did Putin decide to invade Ukraine? And why did Putin decide to invade Ukraine on the scale in which he did, a full-scale nationwide invasion, instead of a more limited uh, risk uh, Donbass offensive? And then the other questions that it asks are, Basically, why did uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, fail to achieve its initial goals? And how has Putin really managed to maintain power inside Russia and sufficient uh, domestic support uh, regardless? Right? So that's kind of um, an interesting thing. And also, but where are the future directions of Russian politics and foreign policy are going? I guess, like, to uh, just summarize the conclusions very, very briefly, like, I don't want to, like, uh, retell the whole story. Uh, basically, I would say, that uh, in terms of the, the causes of the intervention, I push back against uh, the, some of the traditional arguments that have often been used, like uh, the overwhelming focus on uh, NATO expansion and some of the systemic drivers of the conflict. And instead, I really look towards uh, Russia's uh, internal dynamics and taking a domestically focused argument. In particular, I look at how uh, Vladimir Putin really framed the whole concept of regime change in, uh, in Kiev and how important it was to him to uh, overturn the Euromaidan revolution and the example that it set in terms of democracy and civil society and potential movements in a more uh, progressive direction. So I that's why the subtitle of the book is uh, Russia's uh, Case for Global Counter-Revolution, right? It's uh, effectively not just a war against Ukraine. This is a war against liberalism. It's also a war against democracy. And interestingly enough, the, the Russia has really constructed uh, an identity, a foreign policy identity around uh, counter-revolution. Like the rhetoric that Russia used uh, with regards to delegitimizing Euromaidan, like accusing the Euromaidan activists of being puppets of the West or fascists or Nazis, is exactly the same as what the Soviets used in their own propaganda to denigrate the 1953 rebellion in East Germany, 1956 in Hungary, 1968 in Czechoslovakia. 
And uh, even when Russia was more pluralistic, like in the early 1990s, like during the 1993 constitutional crisis, the same kinds of rhetoric was being used to describe mass protests. So this narrative and this notion of kind of overturning Euromaidan, this attack on liberalism is a really core component of how Putin has managed to unite the Russian public around uh, consistent support for this war. And it's a key reason why the propaganda resonates so much across generations and why Russians are apparently so passive in the face of this, uh, the atrocities that we're seeing. That's kind of what I kind of bring in. And then I go into all the granularities of the frontline dynamics and, and Russia's relationships across the world, from the declining influence of the post-Soviet space to their pivot towards the Indo-Pacific and their forays of sustainability, some of the forays that we've seen them making in Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East. Absolutely. And uh, the funny part is, of course, that this uh, coincides with our discussion last time. And this is where the arc actually hits in that essentially all of this, you call it the counter-revolution. I understand the argument for it and the consideration. It, it evidently is. It, Putin and his regime currently sees the West, the Enlightenment, the consequence of liberal democracies. Um, they see this as the antithesis. It is the biggest threat to their thuggish regime, which they have re-erected out of the ruins of the Soviet Empire and the conundrum and cauldron of, of different forces in the 1990s. And uh, quite evidently, they, in order to defend their own thuggish oligarchy, they have to create that consensus amongst their society. But I mean, we would have caught this parliament Kirkensis, I mean, bread and games in Roman times, probably, but that is what they've been playing. And at some point in time, after having conditioned their media public over more than a decade, they then were more able to defend their own raison d'etre, their own idea towards liberal democracies. And it's quite actually interesting that if you look back to 2008, when the opportunity existed and the push was there to allow Georgia and Ukraine into NATO. At that point in time, Putin had to take action from his own perspective to save his own empire, because after that, there was nothing else. He knew that he was on the clock. If he were to fail to push, if he were to fail to put it as he did, Yanukovych and the likes into Ukraine to stop it, um, then he would actually be faced with a both Russian and Ukrainian-speaking population right at his border, actually in the location where he typically ordains that uh, there is a tradition of his own, uh, say, continuity of business empire. And unfortunately, it isn't because Ukraine is older than the Duchy of Moscovy. So um, it is understandable against this kind of paradigm that he had to fight. And we, we obviously, all of this is based on the fact that they like to lord over others. They like the continuity only because they rule. If you look at Putin, meaning the biggest oligarch of all, or the, um, the guy who actually controls the oligarchs, the, the guy who manages to allocate the power, he still allows the Kabuki theater to go on for the West. We see today, yet again, a seemingly erratic uh, Prigozhin, but on the other hand, he plays his role. We see Mr. Shoigu, the ultimate of all Tuva kings, quite literally, um, ruling his position and supposedly visiting the troops in order to set another counterbalance. But all of this fits into a narrative which is directed to the West. What say you? Is it more for, is it both for domestic consumption? Yes, on the one hand, but is it more for us that they behave erratically so that the West continues to fear? What happens if we push for Putin to fall? 
Well, definitely, I think it's uh, aimed at the West, a lot of that uh, weaponization of unpredictability. That's uh, certainly uh, been the case. And it's very interesting that they know the fault lines very well inside the uh, European Union, especially, you know, when Olaf Scholz keeps kind of talking about escalation risks. And uh, even though Boris Pistorius obviously is doing a lot better in the movement of leopard tanks and, uh, and, and not really uh, paying so much attention to that, they're very aware of what the uh, re perceived red lines are, particularly with regards to long-range missiles, fighter jets, a fear of a NATO-Russia confrontation. So nuclear brinkmanship and uh, all these threats really are aimed at, at a Western audience. And they're also really aimed at kind of domestically, of course, at really reinforcing that total hybrid warfare narrative against the West. And this is not just a war against Ukraine. This is a war against a Western alliance much more powerful than us. We're the David, they're the Goliath. It's not a big country invading a small country, right? So it's got uh, the two sides to it as well. And also, I think that uh, this unpredictability that we're seeing, though, between uh, Prigozhin and uh, Shoigu and, uh, and and just this current standoff right now, which is absolutely fascinating, is uh, really being received in mixed uh, ways inside Russia, right? We're seeing some of the Russian propagandists, like you know, Vladimir Solovyov or the Rudovka Telegram channel, which is one of the biggest ones, basically calling out Prigozhin, you know, either directly or indirectly in Solovyov's case. And basically saying that this is undermining the war effort, it's creating divisions, it's creating uh, cohesive differences. But we're seeing others, you know, uh, rallying uh, behind Prigozhin to some degree, like people like, you know, Lysariov or Sergei Markov or some others, Markov in particular, saying that, you know, Prigozhin and Wagner are much more popular than the Russian army in general, and they should be getting the shells and the munitions that they need. So this whole, uh, the, the Putin strategy, obviously, of keeping these rival power centers and playing these people off each other, He's now, I think, in some way, spinning out of control and becoming a major liability. It's good for him politically, but it's bad for the war effort. But they can keep this going because it is good to constantly keep the narrative of a potential worst future if Putin were to be removed in play. Now, it's also important for him to make sure that he can harness all the various segments of society. It's actually very good marketing, if you look at it from that perspective. He can continue to harness pretty much each and every one to then project their hopes on the Tsar, like in his annual interview, sorry, annual press conferences, which he doesn't do or didn't do this year, and which he may not be able to do next year, where everything was always projected upon him. And if only the Tsar knew, and when the Tsar knew, things were about to change. Yeah, exactly. This, yeah, this, I mean, culture, I think... this culture approach is still there, isn't it? What was that? I said this uh, kind of cultish approach, this projection on this one dear leader that remains still the key element. Yeah, well, I think it definitely does, right? I think it's just, it's really, they're really trying to aim and trying to show that he's above the fray, right? And it's just these actors who are underneath. It was interesting to say that on the day of all this Bergosian uh, Shoigu uh, uh, conflict, there was actually a very much a fabricated sociological research poll that came through that was released by Rian Novosti that showed that Putin's got 80% uh, support and 77% of people have more confidence in his leadership. And the thing is that the, the point that they really wanted to emphasize that over the past year, support and confidence in Vladimir Putin has increased in spite of the, uh, whatever's been going on in terms of the war effort and not gone down. So even in this moment, right, there are, the Russian media is really trying to shield Putin from any kind of criticism or any kind of movement. There are some criticisms of Putin that are starting to surface uh, in veiled or indirect forms 
from some of the Russian telegram channels. And uh, the general uh, lines are, are as follows. Like number one that's quite interesting is that they argue that Putin made a mistake by recognizing Poroshenko's legitimacy as president of Ukraine after Euromaidan and then engaging with Ukraine on the Minsk Accords because the, the West was setting those up to fail and that was what kind of got us, uh, us into this war. And uh, we, we, we bought Ukraine eight years to militarily strengthen and arm and we could have defeated them much more easily back in 2014. So that's one line of criticism. Another line of criticism, obviously, is that Putin is somehow not fighting this war brutally enough, and he's kind of fight, fighting with one hand tied behind his back, and he isn't doing enough to target, you know, uh, decision-making centers or uh, infrastructure like railways or things like this. So there are some critics, the criticisms of Putin that are seeping in from the really hardline war hawks, more so than I've ever really seen uh, at any other point during the war. But uh, still, Putin does have this image of kind of invincibility and this cheerleader image. And uh, even in moments of crisis like this, they're still trying to show that he's by far the most trusted person. And the problem is that it's, uh, there's really nobody else who is trusted by the, the vast majority of the people. The, old, the second most, I think, was Mikhail Mishustin in some of the latest sociological surveys. But even he is in single digits in terms of people actually wanting to support him as leader because he's hollowed out the uh, opposition or hollowed out the uh, the government so much that it's really become a cult. Uh, right, so uh, Axel is uh, rearranging the uh, the title for uh, this talk at the moment. So, uh, but um, so I've got I have a, a different question, right? So to remind everyone, so uh, the uh, uh, your book that's coming out is Russia in Africa: Resurgent Great Power or Bellicose Pretender, right? Yes, yeah, so that book is already out. That book came out in February, and the other book that just uh, came out now is uh, Putin's War in Ukraine. Ah, okay. So yeah, this is so where I uh, back back. this is where I got it wrong. So here's Here's the thing. So I, I do have a question. I, so, uh, so you know, I'm I was born in what was Northern Rhodesia, is now Zambia. So I'm I'm very interested in in this subject. Uh, so my my question is uh, the uh, um you've got a uh, uh, it says um, there's a, a quote uh, three decades after uh, Russia's union uh, Russia the Soviet Union's uh, collapse, Russia has tra transformed transformed from a fringe player to a resurgent great power in Africa. Uh, so my question is, is how do you think that's changing now? Great power. So uh, my argument in that book is that Russia is actually a virtual great power, right? So it's a great power that's got a lot of the trappings of status because it's got historical memories of being a superpower, providing military technical assistance, development aid, client states, ideological solidarity. And it never hesitates to make that uh, those historical legacies become uh, present, right? by framing itself as an opponent of neocolonialism, just the same way that uh, from France and the United States, just the same way that uh, the Soviet Union framed itself as an opponent of uh, decolonization, well, supporter of decolonization, rather, and opponent of apartheid, right? So that really comes through, and you really see that in Russia's interactions with countries like uh, Angola and South Africa, and now more recently, obviously, in the Sahel, where they're trying to displace uh, France in Burkina Faso, and uh, because they've already done it in Mali. So. That's, uh, that's one thing. And the other thing, too, is that Vladimir Putin has the ability to really still do pageantry in Africa, right? You've seen like, uh, the, him, him in 2019 bringing 43 uh, African countries uh, to Sochi. There's going to be a second uh, Russia-Africa summit happening in July in St. Petersburg. It seems like it's going to have quite a substantial attendance on the continent. We saw the interparliamentary dialogues that happened between Russia and Africa back in March, where there were a lot of praises, even from countries that 
haven't had traditionally very close ties with Russia recently, like Guinea Bissau, praising Putin's leadership. Russia forgives their debt. Malawi, right, which voted against Russia in the UNGA, Russia ships and fertilizer, and now they're coming to the summit. So it looks like there's going to be a lot of pageantry and a lot of uh, shows that Russia's not isolated in Africa. But where it becomes virtual is really quite interesting, is because their economic presence in the continent is very small. It's uh, $20 billion of trade in sub-Saharan Africa. That's less than uh, Turkey and one-third that of India. And also their $11 billion in investments they promised in Sochi haven't happened anywhere. And also we're seeing now a precipitous decline of Russia as an arms distributor, according to latest statistics, even in Algeria, which was long a cornerstone of Russian uh, uh, arms and security presence. Then add the fact that the Wagner Group has failed in Mali and it's uh, it's failed in Libya against the Turkish offensive and it really didn't achieve much in Central African Republic beyond Bangui. And it's, uh, and now it's uh, trying this gambit in Sudan with like really unclear results. I think that you know Russia's influence in Africa is very vulnerable. So Russia's good at selling its case and promoting its narrative and puffing itself up and showcasing itself as a great power and looking like one. But when it comes to actually delivering the goods, right, in terms of investments, in terms of uh, counterterrorism and security protection, in terms of uh, really doing some of the stuff that the Soviet Union was able to do, it can't, right? No, no, exactly. Look, my favourite, uh, my my favourite uh, uh, image of of Putin and and the Russia is in actual fact a frill lizard trying to make itself. Uh, uh, look frightening by making itself look bigger, which appears to me uh, some of what they do um, in in Africa, right? I, I, my my next question is is how much do you think that some of the Central African states are a little or protected by the fact that China is making inroads in those areas? Does that give them a little bit of protection from the uh, sort of uh, the, the the Wagnerites and the rest of it in the area? Yeah, well, it's very interesting to see the dynamic between Russia and China inside Africa. Because uh, Russia and China, for all their no limits partnership talk, they really have had a systemic struggle in terms of engaging in extra regional theaters of power projection. We just saw a discussion about Middle Eastern security happen in the aftermath of China's uh, brokering of the Saudi Arabia Iran deal and also ahead of it because there was some Russian channel diplomacy there. But that kind of discussions about uh, security never really extended to African security. There's only one Russia China dialogue forum that occurs in economics. You can hear it tell two years in a row. I think 2020, 2021. I don't even think it was held last year. And uh, it, yeah, so it's very, very little cooperation, which means that Russia and China often find themselves inevitably at uh, cross purposes. And one of the interesting things is that the Chinese state media uh, rarely criticizes anything about Russia. But uh, before the Ukraine war, Wagner was one of the few areas where there was some uncensored criticisms, even in the People's uh, Daily or the People's Liberation Army Daily. They made fun, for, of, for example, of their foray into Mozambique. And they made fun of the fact that they lost half their forces in a tropical rainforest where they didn't even know where they were going. They uh, they were talking openly about uh, their their casualties and uh, and their mishaps uh, quite, quite interestingly. So obviously China and the Belt and Road Initiative and its image of stability that it likes to project is being seen by African countries as a hedge on on well, Wagner and its stabilizing activities. But also, the Russians have been trying to market themselves as a hedge on, on dependence and complete dependency on China, too. So that kind of cuts uh, both ways, and it kind of creates an interesting uh, movement. I think it's, it, one example would be uh, even Zimbabwe, right, where Mugabe was obviously more partial to the Chinese, but there were some other officials and hardliners around him who went to Western or more sympathetic towards Russia. And we saw some interesting facts and force between Russia and China and the platinum mining sphere uh, during his tenure.
Yeah, I mean, look, there, there will be a thing with Zano PF, right, in Zimbabwe and yeah. how they look at the old Soviet Union and, and how that worked. There will be a lot of people, a lot in Zimbabwe. You still remember those days and 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 the uh, uh, and the war, right? So yeah, yeah. So there'll be a, a big pull in that direction. But we've they've got the copper mines going going up towards in Zambia with the copper belt and. There's the railway going through to Tanzania, which obviously uh, these things are um, uh, strategically for them may may they may have a pull, I guess. But obviously it's owned by the Chinese now. Yeah, exactly. And obviously China's destruction of infrastructure and railways and stuff is a big advantage that it can uh, it can do. Because when you look at uh, uh, Russia, for example, they've also dabbled or tried to sometimes uh, get into that infrastructure type industry. Hey, Nigeria, I think they were trying to do some work with that. And I spoke to some people in the Nigerian railway industry for my book who basically were saying that the Russians really were not following through on, uh, on anything that they were promising. I mean, in Central Africa and, uh, and in North Africa, they're trying to build infrastructure too. I mean, they're talking about using Central African Republic as some kind of a, 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 some kind of a hub for power projection or getting into the, uh, the Gabon, Republic of Congo area and building like, you know, Central African kind of oil pipelines and projects. But there's no substance to that. I mean, they don't have enough relations with enough countries to be able to pull that off. And all their ideas about creating an alternative pipeline access from Morocco to Nigeria to counterweight Algeria's exports to the Mediterranean, which kind of would be showing up after the Ukraine war, were really fanciful as well. So on the infrastructure side, I mean, China is using that very well in terms of soft power, and Russia can't hope to compete there. Yeah, no, I, I'm pretty certain that Axel is laughing at, at the point where we went, they're attempting to get into infrastructure, their ability yeah. to do these things. <laughs> so, so, so I had to, I was, uh, I was going, oh, I've got to really try and make sure I don't touch that because I'm laughing when you said it, uh, Russia infrastructure building, right, all of these things just came in. I went, no, no, yeah, because they can't. I mean, they, they can't even build a tank at the moment. So how the hell are they going to be able to build something that's even bigger? Exactly. Um, without they promise much and, price, and that's part of the reason why it's so empty, right? Their great power status claims, uh, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. they're basically empty promises. The only thing they are able to provide is is muscle, right? And uh, and um, and small arms to, to people. So, but my question, and I'm really interested in this question, is, is that, um, because uh, a lot of what they've got uh, when they're in Africa is the look at us, we're the strong man. Yeah. Um, but they're getting a huge kicking, right? Let's uh, give it a, the, a British word. They're being given a beating, right? And um, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, sorry, yeah. Uh, and so how's, how's that going to um, come out in Africa in terms of the uh, uh, African leaders who are looking for strong men, and all of these things. How do you think that's going to play out? Um, I think that uh, in terms of, you know, how African leaders are kind of uh, looking for this, I mean, obviously, Russia offers autocracy promotion. It offers to shield countries that have been vulnerable to Western sanctions or to isolation and really don't have many other alternatives. And that's really obviously where they're going to be expanding their partnerships the most. So it's, uh, it's unsurprising that, you know, that they would swoop into Mali after the 2021 coup that they would try to make an outreach to Burkina Faso after a similar type situation. They've been trying to look at Eritrea as a potential hedge on their Port Sudan uh, Red Sea naval base. And uh, also, Russia increasingly is having a history now of not just capitalizing on coups and sanctions, but also trying to cultivate instability in a more pronounced way. So I used to see them more as a beneficiary of instability, a beneficiary of bad governance. Now they're both a beneficiary 
and, a, and to some degree, in a limited sense, a catalyst for it. And I think that an early example is actually uh, what happened in Sudan. So I was just uh, actually uh, engaging uh, with, uh, with, a, with, a, with a journalist who uncovered some very interesting information about Hemeti, the RSF chief uh, from uh, the uh, Kornakovsky Dossier Center. And there were documents that showed that the Russians actually cultivated Hemeti and encouraged him to move his troops to Libya as early as 2019 to act as a hedge against Khalifa Haftar because they didn't trust him. And he was a U.S. citizen. They didn't uh, move forward. Then, of course, in 2021 and 2022, they had started looking at the gold mines as a way of circumventing Western sanctions and potentially preparing for and then ultimately financing the, uh, the war efforts. And we're seeing them now in Chad start to destabilize the country also through the support of fact rebels and uh, who have uh, been trying to assassinate the president and who assassinated the president's father. So Russia now is uh, promoting autocracy and also aligning with would-be autocrats to disable uh, governance in the region to make the bad governance situations even worse. So that's really the only uh, area where, I mean, I think that they do pose a major threat. And it's really important that Western policymakers uh, eviscerate the uh, information worker that they're sending out, eviscerate the fact that, you know, that they're fighting neocolonialism, that, that somehow Wagner is an effective military force that's uh, combating terrorism uh, more effectively than the French and the Americans are. But the problem is disengagement from Africa, especially from the United States, means that we often are following the Russians instead of trying to preempt them. And that's, uh, that's what gives them their, their advantage. Yeah, look, uh, the, it's concerned me for quite a while, the fact that you just don't hear anything, any anything in an attempt to combat the misinformation, disinformation that they're pushing out, right? And you go, yeah, I mean, uh, the, so much is going through and you're going that the loss of the BBC World Service, which was the BBC World Service was listened to everyone uh, throughout Africa because it was one thing they could get and felt they could trust. Right, and I just don't see anything being pushed out. Um, so, but that was so, exactly the question I was about to chip in because, uh, how do you see this? In I mean, Sammy, you're still you're still on the island and blighty. I mean, uh, just like David is. It, thing really seems to me that uh, currently the government has absolutely no perspective, and the BBC itself is in such I mean, apocryphal crisis um, as to its mission. They haven't quite understood that actually we are at war and we've been at war for a long time. And whilst maybe MI5 and MI6 do understand it, it seems that others have lost their way. When you speak to journalists, when you speak to people at the Beep, what is, what is your view, what is your feel as to how they see it? Because I've heard loads and loads of complaints since last year when, when this first started in November in that format. I mean, they're losing, what, about a thousand hours of programming easily. The, uh, there's hundreds of jobs going down the toilet. We're losing lots and lots of people with long-standing know-how. And they can't all join Tyler Brulé at Monocle. I mean, that's impossible. Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously there's a big problem when you kind of see a situation where Russia is expanding now its uh, media presence in these uh, in, in the global south, like, you know, from uh, strengthening its uh, Sputnik presence in Tunisia to re-trancophone West Africa more effectively to moving uh, RT correspondents from Europe into South Africa. And we're seeing China also with uh, very similar and complementary narratives. I mean, they may not cooperate on strategic issues, but they certainly cooperate on narrative uh, synergies in the same area. And the West is uh, is cutting back. Britain is cutting back. I mean, the Americans with Voice of America, too, is cutting their budget. I mean, it creates a, a significant uh, problem, obviously. 
And then there's just, I think, apathy. And there's just like a, either laziness or lack of proactiveness. And this was really frustrating to me when I was looking at the uh, information war that was surrounding the food security issues and the Black Sea Green Deal. I mean, that could be a perfect area to really show Russia for who they are and what they're doing because of weaponizing food against the most vulnerable citizens in the world. But uh, Russian ambassadors get their say about how sanctions are causing all of this and that they're kind of blameless and this Ukraine is mining ports and it's the Ukrainians and the West faults. And Western ambassadors and Western diplomats and Western media outlets don't push back against it or they come push back months later. And then Russia gets the first mover advantage. So all these cuts are really, really coming at a very, very bad time. And the last thing we should be doing right now is cutting back the public diplomacy in the global south if we're really going to try to make this, you know, not just the West against Russia, but the international community against an aggressor uh, attacking a sovereign state and uh, violating international law in the way it has. I mean, it's evident that there is a contrast between the lack of culture, and I have to say this, I mean, the Duchy of Moscovy has not produced anything uh, other than, uh, say, appropriating names and cultures of others and creating 223 genocides over the period of his existence, so there you go. But having said this, and I'm sorry to make it so radical, but the, the even the we discussed it earlier today, you weren't there at that point in time, we had a couple of historians here and we talked about the history of Novgorod and um, how it was burned down at least twice completely and the only property rights which once were protected and uh, uh, say executed and available were in Novgorod. And uh, obviously uh, people from Moscow got rid of that. Having said this, it is evident that there's a dichotomy between totalitarian and authoritarian regimes, and that we are at the cusp of this battle in terms of the digital media. And it's not a matter of the licensee discussion in Britain at all. On the contrary, I mean, this, the World Service could be supported by a separate budget, which actually has to do with spreading the news of the Enlightenment, if I may make it so cultural, but spreading the news of facts and a trustworthy voice of the corporation producing decent news and local reporting. I mean, they shut down the, the, the only sensible um, Western voice of reason in Somali has been shut down. The Voice of America doesn't do it anymore. Uh, the Canadians don't broadcast anything. It's absolutely terrifying. If we leave the information field, basic information about things which are actually handy to people, educational, political, structural, how to deal with infrastructure, how uh, laws and rights work, how uh, people interact in society, how they can be assisted in building institutions, which makes us typically win the argument. Building institutions which people can rely and vote for and vote people out of office. I, 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 don't see, I don't see the need for us to shut things down just because we have domestic discussion about budgets. That's irrelevant. We're wasting more money every year than we ever spend on this matter. Now, but this is, that is the information space. On the other hand, the Chinese, I agree with you, by the way, Samir. On the other hand, the Chinese have in recent years ramped up their overall projection of power via digital, via digital media. But the problem is that, of course, they have a language barrier and they have a marketing barrier. They're not good at this. Russians, on the other hand, they're very good at it, but they can't fund it. So how do you see this? I mean, RT, for example, can't be projected anymore. And certain countries in Europe, they're completely blocked. And that's good. That's fine. Yeah. And it should be shut down. Nobody should be speaking Russian on television, I'm sorry, at all, until this war is over, and maybe a little bit longer, for that matter. This may sound radical, but uh, I think sometimes it's actually quite good to be clear in that regard, send a cultural message. 
How do you see the trend in British society when you're there, as opposed to, say, the continent, for example? Because the continent is, is very ambiguous in that regard. But I, I see a lot of Brit, uh, British, uh, say, cities and villages and townships full with Ukrainian flags. How do you, how do you see the, the, the support of the public for these measures? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the British public right now is just not thinking that much about, you know, this kind of uh, public diplomacy type uh, information warfare type thing anywhere near as much as it, it should. It's not really entering the political debates or the political discussions nearly enough from the uh, Labour Party, which is criticizing the, uh, the, the Conservatives and some of their budget cuts over here. I think the fact that obviously this is coinciding with the cost of living crisis, it's coinciding with inflation and with uh, so many other problems from the aftershocks of Brexit to the Northern Ireland Agreement to, um, you know, to many other, other things get more, more coverage. And it's just, uh, it's really kind of unfortunate to see this. I mean, I think that in France, there's a little bit more of a political discourse and spirited discourse about this because RFI and French outlets have actually been thrown out of countries, right? Like in Mali and Burkina Faso, and that's been a gateway to greater authoritarianism and restricting media control. And the Russian information warfare has been so uh, directly targeted and leveled against France in uh, many parts of the world. I mean, obviously, Russia is targeting Britain all the time to appear in a domestic audience, but not really necessarily targeting British influence uh, outside of Europe, right? Most of the time, they did the more in Africa, for example, they're more caustic towards the French. So I'm just not seeing uh, an impetus to change this over here. And that's kind of what's a little bit frustrating, maybe because we haven't really, uh, at least uh, sadly from our point of view, really seen the impact on how it impacts our, our standing in the world in clear enough terms that it becomes an issue of public debate or parliamentary debate. Okay, so let's, let's go another direction now. Um, if you look at the messaging uh, the Ukrainians are doing, on the other hand, in recent days, um, May the 4th, um, President Zelensky, after having gone to a meeting of all the um, Scandinavian plus Ugric, in this case, the Finnish nations, so that, say the nations with the cross of the flag, and a very successful meeting, as I hear, despite the fact that the Finns don't talk about it much, but the others have talked a little. Um, after having a meeting with those nations, including two, which actually have F-16s, he then goes on the uh, government plane, which brought him to Finland, meaning the Dutch plane. He goes and visits Den Haag. How do you rate the overall setup, his speeches and his presence there? Well, I think that the visit to The Hague obviously was extremely uh, uh, interesting, right? And number one, it was the discussion topic that was quite interesting was to set out the Dutch position on uh, F-16s, right? Uh, particularly when the Dutch made that statement that we're working diligently on trying to see how F-16s can be supplied. We're working with Britain, we're working with Denmark, we're working with Belgium, and uh, we're trying to make that happen, but uh, without offering any kind of clear commitment. And of course, this uh, follows uh, some discussions in the United States that, you know, the Ukraine, if Ukraine was involved in that uh, UAV attack on, on the Kremlin, that maybe there would be even more red line or even more pushback inside the Pentagon against uh, giving F-16s to Ukraine, uh, period. Reznikov also came out with an interesting statement in an interview on the same day, basically saying that, you know, we're, we understand that, you know, F-16s and fighter jets are more of a long-term aid issue. We're focusing more on, you know, munitions, air defenses, things like that. So I think it was interesting to see him uh, come out with uh, an image and gave text the Dutch just waters about the F-16s without the whole Ukrainian government really, really pushing and forcing the Dutch's hand. And also Reznikov, in fact, making a statement that would be a bit more pessimistic about the deliveries and getting the Dutch to talk about it. That was one thing that interested me. 
Another thing obviously that interested me too was how he handled the whole issue of international tribunals and international courts, right? Like he was very, very definitive, obviously, in denouncing this whole idea of a hybrid tribunal process, right? And he was insisting that, you know, Ukrainian courts should target uh, Russian soldiers who have committed crimes. He was talking about how the ICC has a role, obviously, to play in terms of war crimes, but there also should be a tribunal on the crime of aggression. And in Britain and in Germany and in many other European countries, there was a push to kind of hybridize and make all these things uh, one. And he made that very clear that that's not something that would be very good for the justice process. And it would, uh, and the reason is, of course, when you look at when the Ukrainians talk about it, it would, a hybrid tribunal greatly increases the risk that the top leadership in Russia gets immune from the uh, from, from prosecution. And it's just the lower level uh, lackeys and the following order people who get uh, who get hammered tend to uh, hit over the head. So that was that was pretty uh, interesting. Senator, yeah. Asserting sovereignty, asserting sovereignty over the process, because yeah. the invasion is from a neighbor neighbor directly into the country of Ukraine, and uh, therefore highlighting that Ukraine has agency was absolutely vital. I think he did extremely well. That he uh, highlights that the, uh, that a court to which actually uh, the jurisdiction. Of, is in dispute and Ukraine has never signed up to the process, but he, he highlights that this tribunal should, of course, because it is a, a head of state who has been um, literally now indicted and there's an arrest warrant out, that, uh, that he, uh, say, consents to it as a head of state. I think this was quite momentous and very well done. Yeah, I think absolutely. That was very well done. He did stand up for Ukrainian sovereignty. And also, he took such a firm stance against these um, alternative um, hybrid tribunals and stuff like that. I thought that was a that was a uh, interesting um, trip and interesting movement. Also, I think you know his visit to Finland also was uh, pretty symbolic because that really kind of uh, consolidates you know the whole Nordic European uh, security uh, framework and access uh, more in line. And we're seeing you know Finland obviously being much more proactive in terms of arm deliveries and getting involved in some training initiatives and things like that. It was good that he went there to bring the Finns really into the fold and welcome them in. And also, yeah, of course, you know, Reznikov saying that, you know, Ukraine is a de facto member of NATO, right? Finland's just the newest member on the same day. That was quite interesting, too. No, that, that's very, very interesting, isn't it? It's very good of him to say that. Yeah, that was uh, definitely very uh, good of him because... I mean, yeah, membership obviously crossing the dotted line is going to have to uh, happen after the war, most likely. But they're trying to show that they're as integrated as they possibly can be, uh, short of membership, and in in many cases, you know, getting really integrated with the uh, with the not not just the conventional security threats that are coming from the north, but this can also allow Ukraine to cooperate on other issues like cyber and hybrid threats coming from Russia, and Ukraine can get a seat at the table there if they're engaging with Finland and new members. I think this is a, a good move. I mean, you have to think it's important for both, right? Because uh, yeah. the uh, right on the border, right, the, the the most experience in in how they're they're operating, etc. You've got to think that there'd be some so many reasons to make this happen. Oh yeah, of course, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, like it's interesting to see, like, you know, how Ukraine managed to. Uh, like, I was just talking to an official from Gur uh, last week about some of these issues, like, you know, how Ukraine managed to infiltrate behind some of the enemy lines and find out information about Russian logistics during the Kiev offensive, how they reached out to Belarusian partisans and uh, helped them coordinate and cooperate in terms of the sabotage of railways. I mean, this ability from Ukraine to carry out uh, psychological operations to great success, reach behind the lines and carry out these kind of means of blunting Russian uh, asymmetric threats is really, really valuable for the NATO alliance. And Ukraine 
uh, as it integrates more, can teach these other countries that are close to Russia's borders a lot. Yeah, I mean, and here's a, the big thing as well: the SBU has uh, been work SVU, sorry, has been working uh, uh, the uh, really hard in removing some of those Russian threats that are equally inside uh, Ukraine. You have to think that that several years ago, Ukraine went, you know, what we need uh, more people inside, as well as in the knowledge that they knew that there would be Russians who were just um, uh, pretty much everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, like uh, it's very interesting to see. Like how Ukraine, yeah, has managed to uh, learn from you know, now dealing with Russia for nine years, right, and being able to um, you know transplant that. Yeah, so that's uh, that's uh, that's that's a good uh, set of strengths. So yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's good. So I, I tend to call it the Russian disease. It gets everywhere, right? And what they're trying to do at the moment is to try and excise it out. Um, Axel. Yeah, buzzword, exciting. We have one topic which we often discuss here, uh, Samuel, and that is actually the undermining of the, of, uh, say, the media perception by means of sports and sports washing. Right. There's a specific topic which uh, uh, David and I pursue quite heavily at the moment, and David started this campaign. Um, that is uh, that we would like to ensure that there's sufficient media um, attention to the fact that not only the IOC is currently undermined by Russian sports propaganda, but key elements and key events uh, of the world sports calendar are currently under threat, one of which is Wimbledon. Maybe David can highlight how we see it at the moment and how this actually impacts how people perceive the war. Yeah, so I mean, very briefly, uh, Sam, you no doubt you'll be, uh, you'll hopefully you're up to date on it. But the, the way it stands at the moment, the LTA has made a decision uh, that they will accept um, uh, Russian uh, uh, tennis players as long as they're neutral and put that into quote marks, right? Uh, what the, uh, uh, but the point that any of them or any uh, Russians or Belarusians is, are competing is a bit of a tragedy. The idea that the uh, that Wimbledon has fallen prey to the the lie that in actual fact that they need um, the Grand Slams to be successful and to make money and um, yeah and uh, as I said falling uh, falling for the I mean guess the Russian lie that's about that Russia the world needs Russia the world needs Russian sport uh, sports people and in actual fact that those sports people have uh, rights uh, when they're a part of a country and propagandizing for that country that's committing genocide yeah I mean that's definitely something that's uh, a big concern right like obviously Russia hasn't had the kind of sports boycott that we saw you know apartheid South Africa or Yugoslavia get during the 1990s where it was like they were nearly completely shut out from uh international competitions and also it was pretty telling to see from uh, a senior official i believe it was in the IOC, right like just uh, yesterday talking about how the uh, fact that you know we should be uh, not uh, discriminatory against russian military personnel like who have come in if they unless they have overtly in an individual basis promoted genocidal or war crime propaganda or they've been involved in war crimes against crimes against humanity through a conviction uh, process which when Russia doesn't extradite its citizens, it depends on, you know, a Ukrainian or international court capturing these people and then and, and, and trying them. Really, really opens the door for a lot of very, very sketchy and, uh, and people who have done some horrible things to obviously be participating in sporting competition with the uh, thumbs up of uh, high-level committees. And there, there was good that there was outcry and there was pushback 
I have a feeling that that uh, might translate into politics. But uh, it's just worrying to see that that's the mindset. I mean, it's incredibly worrying because essentially, uh, uh, look, uh, the uh, uh, the victim should be uh, able to protect itself from further abuse by an abuser, right? But essentially, uh, the argument is uh, with uh, Russian. Uh, uh, in fact, I think the statement was. Uh, evens, even Russian soldiers who had been serving in Ukraine should be able to uh, uh, to compete, right? Uh, and that's, yeah. uh, I mean, that really is uh, forcing forcing the uh, forcing the victim to confront an abuser. Although I, I see this in a slightly different right light. I see this as part of their uh, the campaign to ensure that Russian athletes get because what they've done instead of going you know what is reasonable people reasonable people um, if someone's saying oh that's mine when presented with the truth they go oh, right that's yes that isn't mine uh, but that's not what the Russians do is it what they do is they push even further so part of their uh, part of the bit they're trying to do this is my belief is that what they're doing is forcing the issue even further. So when they climb down from the fact that they won't have any of their soldiers who are serving in U Ukraine, and by the way, none of them will be, probably, because guess what? They'll all be training. Um, when they climb down from that thing, they'll go, but we've climbed down from this. You need to accept this red line that we've now created, which is you need our athletes in their entirety. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely trying to uh, make sure the Russian sport maintains a seat at the table after all the issues with drugs and uh, other sort of controversies and scandals. Of course, the Russians are pushing back and looking at double standards, as they often do, that this is not the only time when you've had countries involved in an armed conflict uh, participating. I mean, I believe like, you know, the Soviet Union obviously participated in international sporting competitions uh, like the World Cup and other things during the 1980s when they were invading Afghanistan, and then also countries like Iraq, right? Uh, during the Iran-Iraq war, an aggressor country invading another, things like this. So they'll always come with their spin and their double standards of how this is not unprecedented and that uh, this is just the Russophobia as you kind of say anything about it. But uh, yeah, they're definitely getting a, a seat at the table. And it's really scary that, you know, there's no restrictions on actual active duty or military soldiers who have, who have fought being able to now potentially go side to side with uh, well, with Ukrainian athletes and uh, with others in competitions. That's, that's really worrisome, right? You're incredibly worries, worrisome. I, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. There's two javelin players going for it, right? But it's astonishing the IOC are even entertaining. That, that we understand that I mean, since uh, the days of Samaranch, the IOC is not the uh, uh, not the association it should have been. And in actual fact, um, um, there are very, very, uh, you know, the. There are very, many things that are wrong about the IOC, right? Especially how they deal with money, uh, how they do selections, and uh, and the rest of it, right? But it's astonishing that the most of these people they're okay uh, with the Russians being in there, uh, and they even at Sochi when the Russians turned up with the Russian supposedly their neutral their neutral tracksuits, which were neutral, right? Because they had the Russian flag on it. Nothing happened. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like, that's the, the thing that happens in a neutral man, the Russian flag. I mean, it's just like they're they're still competing and they're still getting involved. It's just that the country doesn't get the medal. So that doesn't really do very much aside from window dressing, doesn't it? 
No, exactly. Yeah. Because guess what? They all take uh, pictures uh, with Putin later, right? Uh, they're uh, they're all they're all they're, they're, they'll all get um, uh, the um, sponsorship from Russian uh, from Russian uh, um, uh, companies that are all related to the war. Um, you just can't remove the propaganda out of it, can you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the only time it gets international attention is like when that gymnast wore the Z, right? And like kind of gets a that so overt, right? But like aside from that, it slips under the radar a lot of the time, yeah. So how would you suggest one uh, one should go about it? How should we all jointly, um, say, incentivize uh, Her Majesty's government to take a different stance? Because it is, it is the Home Secretary who, upon questioning, confirmed in pretty much the very same wording in which both the LTA as, as well as um, Wimbledon itself stated that they would feel they have set up a process with which they would make sure that and so on and so forth. It was exactly the same approach. So they have coordinated themselves. How should we break this mold up? Um, I think that, you know, obviously there needs to be having some clear uh, and, and also not just Britain doing this alone. I mean, they need to be engaging with international sporting institutions, other countries in, inside Europe, um, allies, everything to come up with some kind of a more international codified procedure and how to deal with, you know, what to do with serving military members and uh, what to do with uh, those who have kind of promoted effectively uh, hate crimes, right? Like if they are promoting the Z and they're promoting those symbols and they're promoting this war, it's, a, it's just genocide, it's hate crimes, that type of thing. It's something that Britain can work on, but also, and, and set regulations on, but if uh, if Britain's only doing it and others aren't, international bodies are promoting a different message. It just creates disconfidence. So in some ways, it's the international bodies, it's the IOC, it's these uh, officials who are making these loose-lip statements who need to be the ones to get cracked down first. I bet. Alrighty, let's switch gears yet again, if I may. Um, now, in in the last forty-eight hours, we've seen many new daily narratives. Um, uh, first, we have this event with. Uh, uh, say a drone or a double drone strike uh, onto a dome in Moscow. Then we have a, a drone event yesterday in uh, Kiev. Now we don't have to go into the massive details of this. I'm more looking as to the media perception and what happened because it seems evident that during the day, whenever something can be capitalized on. The Russians are two steps ahead in launching their campaign in terms of media. It's only the Ukrainians who manage to countermand that quickly. They, uh, today, for example, with the Kinjan miss missile, the Ukrainians, after two and a half hours came out, there was a discussion with the ministry, and then 10 minutes later, fortunately, Yuri Inat went out and gave an interview and therefore buried the question because there was too much speculation got ongoing. Yesterday, uh, initially, there were concerns when uh, that drone hovered about and it was shut down. Then Vitaly uh, Klitschko gave an interview on, on site, which was still ambiguous. He was concerned. He didn't know all the details. One and a half hours later, Ukrainian armed forces comes out with a statement and says, OK, this drone has gone off course. We had to shoot it down. Thank you very much. The Ukrainians are relatively quick. They are fleet of foot. But it seems always that Western media, including online media beforehand, constantly is taking in what is being disseminated and follows and regurgitates and in different ways across time zones, regurgitates what the Russians are serving up. Every single day, new narratives. The Prigozhin video, after Prigozhin statements in recent days, this is the continuation. 
it's it looks to me and please tell me what you what you see in this pattern it is a continuation and it's an acceleration of their kabuki theater that in the run-up to may 9 at the moment they try to create suspense they try to dominate the media space full well knowing that ukraine continues very calmly and very precisely it's shaping operations. How do you contrast this? And, and what would you say about our reaction in the media? Yeah, well, obviously, yeah, there's a lot of attention gathering, a lot of movement towards here. Like that also happens. I mean, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, this whole incident with the Kremlin UAV and this drone and this whole assassination against, against Putin completely uh, eviscerated and suspended coverage of the massacre that happened in Kurzan uh, through um, the shelling that, on the same day that resulted in uh, at least 17 fatalities. Then the Pablo Brad attack, the uh, Uman attack before that. I mean, it's really, really a good way of kind of distracting the media's attention away from uh, those um, those things. Also, the, uh, the the just a very act of uh, closing uh, praise, right? Like you know, whether they're uh, close chattering these praise in the six Russian regions plus Crimea and now twenty one cities, that really is good at reshaping the narrative and really uh, re re moving it forward. So the Russians are very, very good at deflecting from uh, this. And also, it was interesting to see. How uh, Prigozhin, on the day of the Kremlin UAV attack, basically makes a statement that, you know, the Ukrainian counteroffensive has, in fact, begun. And then that caused uh, a whole circus and a whole uh, uh, look and it got a lot of coverage coming through from the media as well, which kind of uh, just pushes back against uh, Ukraine's OPSEC uh, desires, because obviously there's not enough evidence, there's no, really no evidence that it's, uh, it's conclusively happening. But the Ukrainians did a very good job, though, definitely, on the Kinjal issue and also on the, uh, the this latest Volbarakhtar uh, issue, and on also raising the prospect of, you know, Russian resistance uh, fighters potentially being involved in carrying out this strike to kind of deflect from allegations against them. I mean, I think those three things were really, really uh, useful and a good uh, counter program. All righty. Um... So, would you mind if we go to questions? We have we have a couple of members of our audience who would like to come up and also ask but questions. You, I can see okay, Lexicon already has. I just have one request. I have to get off this call for about ten minutes, and then I can come back and answer questions. Is that okay? That's fine. Perfect. That Thank is you. not a problem. All righty. Let's do this. All righty, gentle people. Now that was funky. Sam broke it. <laughs> Sam broke it. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, well, that was funky. Um, our friend uh, Sam uh, Romani just dropped off in, in that very second whilst I was saying uh, a few words about the first part of the segment. Then that happened. So it is Friday, May the 5th, and it's 8.55 in the evening, 20 hours and 55 minutes Kiev time. Here is your timestamp. And with that, we continue in the evening, and we have... Um, I hope so that in about five minutes or so, our friend uh, Sam Romani will revert back and then we can go into questions with all you fine listeners who've been, uh, say, going through the, um, may I say, staccato tempo with which uh, Sam has been going through the many topics at hand. And uh, given the fact that our boy has two books out and has been uh, publishing uh, wildly in recent days and has been on many many programs uh, discussing uh, the affairs of the state and uh, daily happenings in ukraine and in the world i think there's a lot of things to talk about david let me uh, address the title whilst you take it away with mark 
Yes. Uh, well, well I've, yes. Uh, Mark, give me a second. I'm going to uh, get you up and then uh, we'll take it from there. Yeah. Hey, David, thank you so much. And thank you to the co-host and co-host for doing a wonderful job. Um, you may have already heard this, but I saw some news uh, from a few hours ago on a telegraph about a uh, U.S. Patriot missile shooting down a Russian ballistic hypersonic missile. Have you have you discussed that, that yet? Seems fairly significant. Uh, so uh, I don't know if it's been uh, discussed here. I've seen some pictures of it. There's a big question uh, as to whether it is a hypersonic missile. Uh, the uh, I think the the, the uh, the general consensus is it doesn't look like a hypersonic missile. Uh, there is an image that looks like as if the the, the top of the thing, the, a, a image a, that makes it looks like a dummy, a dummy missile, and it looks like part of the warhead is made out of concrete. Um, probably not hypersonic. Uh, when you um, say hypersonic, do you also mean ballistic? Uh, well, uh, so the angle, uh, and here's the question, and I think there's a, a discussion as to whether it was even ballistic. Um, so there is a, a, a picture of uh, the, the missile, and it's embedded uh, and embedded going sideways into a sports field, right, which would not be the direction coming from a ballistic missile, which we, which we straight down. So I think there's a question as to what it, it is even, whether it's a cruise-like missile or something like that. But the fact that it, it appears to have concrete in it, <laughs> that's, also, that's also interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess you're right. There, those are, seem to be some legitimate um, questions. Anyway, thank you, David. No, I pleasure, yeah, Mark. Let, let me add one one thing to it, Mark. We actually had this discussion earlier on today, and just during the first segment with uh, Samuel Romani, we already touched upon it briefly. There's one key item w which matters in that regard. Uh, if this had been a Kim Jong missile, it would be the first recorded and proved shutdown, uh, shot shootdown of a so-called hypersonic missile. There is a high likelihood that the uh, Pac-3 and uh, that the Patriot system as such with current modern sensors is capable of taking down hypersonic missiles. There's a very high likelihood that has been stressed for many years already. And as a consequence, um, it has been expected that it would happen at some point in time. If that were to happen, I put out a big tweet earlier today at the point in time when it seemed as if we had sufficient proof. We had at least two sources coming out stating that there was a hypersonic missile. Then, however, the photos appeared in parallel. The photos which had appeared, the initial ones were a little bit ambiguous, a little bit vague enough, and Gunny was the kindest to go through it. But... Um, what came out then is by means of the photos, it, it was easily detectable um, that this was neither the K101 nor the less photographed K102. And uh, as a consequence, the, the proof which we expect to have soon, because Russians almost likely will try to use another Kinjar. And this may have been a dummy missile. We do not know that. But uh, they are almost likely going to try that out one more time, at least. Great. Axel, thank you and so much for elaborating it, and clarifying that. Sure. But if, they, if this proof were to come out, that would mean that not only the Russian missile program 
is useless, but therefore the threat matrix has changed. It would immediately have a massive impact on the way um, the US Navy perceives the so-called carrier killer and therefore the risk to its fleet in a potential adversarial position or a conflict or an all-out war with the Chinese. It would definitely change the calculus in many European capitals as to their overburdening fears at the moment that their uh, capital assets or some of their key targets could be hit by a hypersonic missile against which they could not defend themselves. Because in some capitals in Europe, there's less trust in uh, what the Americans and NATO states and uh, yeah, their allies have jointly created as a missile defense. And that's the interesting part. So in that regard, it would be great news if it were there, but unfortunately we don't have the proof, which is also why I put out another tweet to correct myself and make sure that um, that I made the mistake that there was fog of war, because that's the thing to do in such instance, David, isn't it? Oh, oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, we can only hope. Thank you again, guys. You're very welcome, Mark. And as I said, Samuel is about to come back to us anyway. Uh, let me cycle up two people. You've got two? Yes, David. Yes, David. You need a phone, mate. <laughs> I do, I'm talking on a phone. <laughs> All righty, Lexicon, you're back. Yeah, I just, um, so many uh, tremendous questions to discuss, and Samuel knows about all of them. I, He's coming back. Yeah. He is coming back. <laughs> well, I was just, um, yeah, it was a good time. Uh, we crashed while he's making this phone call, so it sounds brilliant. Good, efficient use of time. Um, I captured a few uh, songbirds on my Merlin uh, app, but um, I had wanted to bring us back to the the most recent book, the uh, Russia's War in Ukraine, because at the very beginning, how how much time do we have with Samuel? Oh, um, typically Samuel has no time at all, as you know, but uh, I'm quite sure we'll get another half an hour. Okay, yeah, because he had started to summarize the book. I really like his thesis, which pushes back against the other, the Russian thesis. It's all about NATO and security concerns and all this jazz. Legitimate concerns. You don't care about us. And to get into, um, to, to get started on... Uh, Stuff he'd said, of course, Rusi has told us about why uh, Russia's invasion uh, failed so badly. He did get a capsule of uh, why Russia, why Putin decided to invade. But I just wondered if, uh, or maybe you know, the outline of what more is in this book. And I will order it immediately. And and to get him back to the Russia-Ukraine war stuff that he does treat that, of course, can feed into our concern with, okay, what's going to be the consequences now? And consequences. That should be your opening question next come, as soon as he comes back up. Right. I know a little bit about the outline, but I don't want to go too far um, out because, unfortunately, my copy didn't arrive on time. Oh. I'd ordered it myself. <laughs> it's just because it comes from Blackwells in the UK. So it probably hits the desk here on Monday, but that's fine. Okay. I ordered it. And uh, um, so. In a minute or two, uh, he's currently still for a few minutes more on Al Jazeera, and uh, he will rejoin when he's done. So, three, four, five minutes. And oh, I'll listen to Al Jazeera also then. Yeah, well, if you like. I don't like their questions. I'm sorry. I, I have a significant bias towards them by now, developed over the years, and it hasn't become better. I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's fine. I know, but we're like responding. 
with Samuel responding, I like it. Yeah, well, we can ask him what the discussion was because he is talking about Wagner there as he just texted me. So he'll be back up here in a minute. Oh, uh, with that, um, uh, what, what have I missed today? Uh, because I've been, I've been busy calling people, uh, Axel. So I was just going, well, would you want to give me a summary? I would love to, mate, but uh, as you can see, I've been literally out of uh, the whole day because I was uh, predominantly dealing with uh, other family members and then the office. So yeah, uh, I mean, so we joined you're... and rejected. So we're, we're both well, equally ignominiously We are. So do, do you think George can give us a quick update? George, can you give me a quick update? Oh, this is where George isn't listening, isn't it? He's currently rolling pills around, you know, and that's what pharmaceutical people do. And G-Man isn't in the bath, so therefore he's not ready to talk. Chris, are you there? Is it just, is it just us? Is it just us I, three? I think it's just us meandering about. So no, I, what, what I, I, can't I, I am here. Kind of... Oh, you're there. That's I am here. I am here. I'm not, gonna, I'm not sure I'm going to be much good to you, but I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to I, I want to thank everybody for um for for uh, for their posts and comments on my um King Charles post and um and just to, just to let you know that when the war's been won I, I shall be using um hashtag raise the Bronnington. Oh Jamie, you've got your hand up. I do. And I believe I have another co-sponsor for the House, U.S. House bill. But I'm not going to name drop right now. But we're talking and he's a friend of mine in real life. So, yeah. That's what friends are for, though, right, Jamie? Exactly. And I'm trying to get him on here. Oh, uh, is it a big name drop or, or a little name drop? Um. Somewhat of both, because he broke the trend. Um, he totally destroyed um, what what was predicted, and is okay. All right, I, 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 the, I, my, I might. I'm not going to hazard a guess. In my mind, I will hazard a guess, uh, it, despite my lack of knowledge of American politics. <laughs> the, uh, don't hazard a guess. It's, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, when you said nobody was willing to speak, I was said I was like, no, they've been entertaining me all day, and I'm sick in bed. So I wanted to say hi. <laughs> oh, oh, do I'm very sorry to hear that you're a little bit sick. Um, are, the, are you able to give us an update on what's been happening today, or is it you get to choose which one? By the way, I'm sorry. What was the... uh, I saw that there was a story about Belarus putting up border with with Russia and checking passports? What's going on with that? I did not know that. George, do you, do you know anything about that? No, I don't. I sent this story to Michael about two hours ago. Um, I'll find it and DM it to one of I, you. I, I've been out of range of anything that uh, that was uh, the Twitter Twitter size. Anyway, so George, are you, gonna, are you able to give me a bit of an update of today? Well, other than the fact that uh, the, uh, the, the uh, Ukraine AF uh, announced that, that that was not a Kinjal missile that was shot down over Kiev, um, still don't know what the hell those pictures of uh, 
of what those uh, pictures were composed of, but it definitely was not a uh, what was purported to be a Kinshaw missile. They, uh, pardon the pun, shot that down. Yeah, shot that yep. theory down. George, we've said this already. <laughs> And, yes. and it's a pity that it isn't a Kinjar because we would have liked to see the new sensor array. That's the whole point of this discussion. The new sensor array from both uh, Hensold as well as the friends from Israel Albert, uh, which has been put in place since the beginning of April uh, in support of the air defense uh, and the Patriot having arrived and being installed in C2 together with IRSTs and NASAMs with that layer defense. It is extremely interesting to see, and therefore everybody was quite gung-ho when it was supposed to have happened, uh, when news came across, if a Kinjal had been dropped, because uh, the Pax 3 should be able to do so. Yes, but uh, in other, what I, I did, I was just doing a quick synopsis there, actually. I mean, God, I interrupted again. Anyway, so... The other bit of this was... Uh, you were rolling a pill around the floor. Come on. Man. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> the, keep going, uh, keep going, George. Uh, 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 President Pavel of uh, the Czech Republic uh, gave uh, Zelensky a nice gift. Did you see that? I did, I did. Uh, no, Pavel I didn't. I didn't. That's a beautiful one, isn't it? But what's the gift? A pistol, David. A Czech pistol. Ooh. One of the most produced in the world. Uh, you, I, I don't know. I, 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 what pistol would that be? CZ75. I'll send you a link. It's beautiful. Okay. So, David, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a improved. Uh, it's an improved on the design by John Browning, which was uh, the nineteen eleven. No, the uh, the actually the Browning High Power, which uh, which was came out in 1935, and which was the first uh, uh, pistol with a magazine that could carry more than nine or ten rounds. So this CZ 75 has been around for a long time. It's uh, it's used by armed forces throughout the world, um, and also yeah, nine mil. Forces. Yes, nine mil. Okay, and, so it's uh, pretty much what the UK used for forever. Uh, but yes. a, a nicer version, right? Okay, yeah, I quite like that. Browning was okay. I mean, not that I got a choice. It was here's your Browning, right? Yeah, but the CZ CZ seventy five is one of the most uh, for a mass produced pistol. It's one. It's probably the most accurate pistol, and that's the way it, it's designed. So you know, you know, the Browning has a slide, right, that fits over the frame. The CZ the, you mean a slide that takes out bits of skin off your. Off <laughs> between if your thumb and forefinger, right? Yeah. 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 So the, the CZ75, the slide is inside the frame. In other words, the, the, the slide rides inside the frame, which lowers the barrel, which makes it recoil a lot less and, a, and better follow up shots. It, it's a beautiful pistol. It's, it can go through thousands of rounds without having a, a hiccup. And uh, the one he got was, it looks like it's nickel-plated and, uh, or chrome-plated, nickel or chrome-plated, and has uh, what looked like ivory or mother-of-pearl handles. It's, uh, it's a beautiful pistol. But, you Gosh. know, it's a, it's, it's a gift that a general would give, right? You couldn't so, see one of these politicians gifting another politician a pistol. I mean, come on. 
But yeah, if I you have a president who was a general. <laughs> it's the sort exactly. of thing that Patton would have used, right? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Patton had two, uh, two pistols. He had a 45 and a 1911, and his uh, handles were uh, ivory. But that was back before there was a ban on ivory trading and all that stuff. But that's what he had. Nice. Right. I mean, here's the thing. Maybe this is a new thing where uh, leaders of, of, of the free world, uh, they're going to start giving each other guns just in case a Russian turns up, right? Because, and then we could just go, go, here you are. It's perfectly legal. Yeah, it, right. it, was, it was nice. It was, it was a nice gift. Uh, uh, it, was, uh, it was very well done. Was quite impressed. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I would open the case. I would have been impressed too with that. That thing looks beautiful. Looks like a work. We're not allowed pistols in the UK. And I think. It's a shame. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, the uh, I think from the, I'm trying to find out the details, but I think this was a limited production run, and because uh, um, uh, President Pavel, he announced this was pistol number 22, so they might have made like a dry, like a run of only 30 or 40 pistols of these as presentation pistols. And Zelensky got number uh, 22 or number 20. I forget what it was. I think it was 22. But anyway, but uh, if you if you're following President uh, Pavel from the Czech Republic, uh, go on to his Twitter and you'll see the pictures there. I will do. I'll have a look. Uh, G-Man, you've got your hand up. Yeah. Yeah. How do you do? Good evening, everybody. Uh, evening, Axel. Evening, David. Uh, Chris, Jamie, Lexicon, George, and everyone else as well. Um, I'm not going to go through the entire list of people that are here. Um, uh, I'm not sure what's happening in Ukraine. I'm sort of busy, um, preoccupied with the 6th of May, um, 1982 right now, as I'm writing up my <laughs> daily Twitter thread for the Falklands. So, um, but it's nice to see that, um, people are, are giving, um, President Zelensky, um, some, uh, Pretty cool personal protection firearms. Although I think he already has from his from watching the video that Fairlane had translated. Um, I'm pretty sure he already has um, a few pistols around himself. Yes, yes, he probably has. <laughs> yes, he probably has. But you can never have too many, perhaps. Did everybody in the meantime see the Defense of Ukraine coronation video? No, no. I'll go it, is for that. Quite, it is awesome. It is absolutely awesome. I mean, uh, I'll probably I'll just put it up in the nest. It is tremendous, excellent, well designed, well crafted, right on time. It's perfect, and it of course goes with uh, the musical, say, um, part of uh, London calling. It's stunning. It, it is just, I mean, outstanding videography. I mean, great. Well, I'm not right now. Give me uh, a second, mate. I, I'm not seeing the nest either. Uh, whilst we, we're waiting for that, Juicy has had his hand up for a long time. So, Juicy. Oh, yeah, yeah, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> and, and good evening uh, to you all. Um, greetings from uh, Finland. It's one o'clock. Um, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going a little bit back. Uh, with the discussion, um, I was I was holding my hand up for quite a long time, 
before you had a you had a very um, vivid discussion with the lady, and that was really informative. Thank you about that. Um, but before that, you were having a discussion about um, you were saying that you know the czar, Mr. Putin, is you know the the only only guy who is gonna take the Russia into victory and all that. And this this um, um, gave this thought into my mind and tried to cope with me and my, my thoughts. Um, obviously, it is known that uh, Putin doesn't know um, or he's not up to par on what's really happening. I mean, the, the information that we have over here and, that, and, and what we discuss is 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 something that we have and, and Putin is having his uh, own information that all the um, generals and all the stuff and all that stuff is uh, is feeding on him and and he's having his own reality if I'm correct uh, I think so <clears throat> so what I'm thinking now is that when things are going sour um in 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 ukraine um could uh one of Prigozhin's um motives be that he's trying to wake up you know putin in, into reality that you know things are going to shit you know that you're living in a dream that things are not really as they are and in the get-go on the get-go um, if Putin was to remove from the office, uh, killed or whatever, how it's going to work out in Russia, um, all the people that are surrounding him and in, in, in trying to compete of the power that really know what's going on, what would, what would really happen then if they got the power? And this was my this was my question uh, about an hour ago. <laughs> so sorry. For no, that. that's okay. Uh, so uh, listen, uh, maybe I let me present uh, to you a different a different idea uh, that he knows exactly what's happening. Um, uh, he knows that they're they're on their course for failure. And in actual fact, one of the reasons why we've got so many things that are happening around the world, right, is because he's uh, he's in a a huge attempt to distract the world from what's actually happening in Ukraine in a you know, to try and I don't know convince uh, to convince the other countries that we shouldn't be giving help to Ukraine and the rest of it. So they've got these um, ships that are going up in the north, the Baltic. Where are they going out round to the UK, doing their thing there? The other bits in Africa. All of these things. I believe, are an attempt to distract. And I'm 100% sure that he knows exactly what's happening. Hence why we get this, uh, we'll go back to the the, the frilled lizard and the, uh, <laughs> that I, I post out every now and again. And this is what happens when he's trying to do something. So you know, they've got those missiles they sent through, anything, all these things are in an attempt to frighten people and go, look, I'm even more frightening whilst uh, just, you know, uh, coming over as being less frightening. I'm, I, I don't think, 
anymore. At the very start, I was I was prepared to believe that he he was hiding. He didn't know anything. But you no, know, there's so much happening. It, it would be impossible for him to not know. Uh, yeah, thank you, David. And and this is actually my point. Now that everything is going really sour, because it, in 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 my view, uh, which is of course a layman's view, it seems that things are really going. Bad. So what will come next? Well, uh, it's, yeah, <laughs> that's that's, 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 that's the, the that's the uh, that, that's the hundred twenty nine million pound question that uh, the, on the or whatever it is or eighty eight million pounds on the lottery today, isn't it? In the UK, the euro euro millions. Um, yeah, what's going to happen next? I mean, he's going to attempt to hold on to power in any way he can. He's got uh, the the world. His world is falling around him, as the worlds of people like Prigozhin are falling around them as well, right? He's he's not in a hundred percent in control. That there's there's definitely something happening there, and um, I you, you I think you're going to get more and more people become more and more desperate. I think the uh, uh, Prigozhin's videos are, are coming over as that, and and. You've got, oh, it was the other one I saw a video of the other day, and I remember thinking, yeah, these are all you know, people attempting to message. These are people who are, oh, yes, it, it was um, uh, Gherkin as well, isn't it? Uh, these are people who wanted to be at the, you know, eating at the top table. Are They're doing their little plays, but they're getting more and more desperate, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. What I'm, what I'm, what I'm thinking is that, um, you know, um, if you're thinking about Putin and his power as being a hen house and he's being the cock, are the hens now becoming cocks? <laughs> no, exactly. That sounds like a big old cock up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Chris, well, just um, Axel to just continue with. That theme, you know, um, uh, if 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 the um, the Netflix um, documentary "The Last Tsar" about Nicholas II is correct, um, then um, he was both sort of like involved and not involved at the same time. You know, in other in other words, um, uh, like people would come to him and say, make this decision, you know, are we going to uh, fight the Japanese? Um, and then one advisor would say, you must fight the Japanese. And then another one would say, no, 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 you shouldn't fight the Japanese. It would be a big mistake and that, you know. And then he makes the decision and he goes, right, we're going to fight the Japanese, big mistake, right? And then... You know, then he ends up on, then he ends up like, and also, also of course, with Tsar Nicholas II, you've got um, Rasputin um, in the background as well, sticking his oar in, um, as well as the uh, various factions of the advisors uh, to Tsar Nicholas II. Um, so, like, in no way am I trying to uh, um, absolve um, Putin, but maybe just say, it's like possible to be involved and not involved at the same time. And, um, you know, he was like constantly told, uh, you'll be fine. Uh, the, the people love you. 
nobody's going to do anything to you, um, him and his family. And even at the point where people are climbing over the gates of the palace, they're still saying the same thing, you know. So I don't know. I just I just throw that into the conversation, you know. Yes, I mean, it is well worth throwing that into the conversation. One of the conversations we had uh, along the drone that we went over to the Kremlin was uh, people would go, well, why weren't there hundreds, you know, dozens of people with their guns out shooting at the drone? And uh, uh, yeah, maybe that because, you know, the czar, czar in waiting is banned guns from inside the Kremlin because he's so frightened. That, that, that might be another uh, another question as well. Has he banned guns inside there because he's worried, so worried that someone might just go, you know what? Here we are. It's time to take him out. Uh, lots of conjecture. G-Man, you've got your hand back up. I do, yeah. Um, just, uh, a film plug on, just when somebody mentioned Netflix, um, the other night, I, uh, I think it was over two nights actually because it's quite reasonably long. Um, I rewatched on Netflix. Uh, Winter on Fire. It's a uh, dramatized. Well, it's it's about the maiden, uh, the maiden, um, or the revolution of dignity, and it's 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 very powerful. Um, it's also you know it's very powerful and it's also very poignant. Um, just to consider the fight that. A lot of these young men and women now that are fighting in Ukraine for, for their freedom started that job in 2014 or 2013 in uh, Maidan Square in Kiev um, whenever Yanukovych decided to embrace Putin, um, who had always been backing him anyway, I think. Um, and it was part of Russia's hybrid war against Ukraine, the uh, the whole interference with the, their political system to try and pervert that political system and bring make it into an autocratic system like what they have in Russia. Um, and yeah, so if anybody hasn't seen Winter on Fire on Netflix, and you have a spare 138 minutes, go and watch it. It's very very good. Absolutely. Very decent film. Very well made. And uh, I can see that Samuel is joining us yet again. I bumped off from the coronation on Al Jazeera. I'm sorry. So I took a little longer to get on. (laughs) Yeah. The coronation coverage took over from Ukraine. It was supposed to be top of the hour. How are the the fun people at Al Jazeera dealing with our king? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're very fascinated by it. Yeah. They were just wanting to see all the Buckingham Palace photos and all those things. Yeah. There you go then. And I understand you also spoke about uh, Wagner Group, which we here often call Wanger for good reason, but there yeah. you go. Um, we have tons of questions in the meantime. I'm sure that a couple of our listeners who've been up beforehand will come back in a minute. Uh, let's, uh, If you don't mind, let's go directly into questions. Uh, sure. We have Chris and then we have Doman. Chris. Uh, well, uh, Axel, on this, um, hi, Sam, nice to meet you. Um, I shall I shall go back. I miss unfortunately I missed some of your um what you said, Sam, because um I had to do the tea with the kids. I, I apologize, but it has to be done. Um sure. but I I was glad 
right? I, I'm so I'm going to go, and I hope this wasn't covered, but I'm going to go right back to your introduction of your book, which I haven't read yet. Uh, sorry, but um, and you know, I was just like so glad to hear you say that basically you you were debunking this, you know, whole um, uh, idea if you like, that the Russians are doing this because they're threatened by NATO. I nearly couldn't remember that then. <laughs> I got, got it in the end. But, yeah, you know, like, I am so fed up of hearing that. Um, and, Sam, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really, like, fed up of hearing it, like, when I've taken the, the, um, the time to watch uh, Timothy Snyder's um, lectures, you know, which take us back to the origins of, of Muscovy and which basically show us that they've been like they are since the very beginning. Um, do you agree? Uh, if I can perhaps leave it at that and, and maybe your comment. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's obviously a strong uh, thesis for new imperialism and for this uh, being uh, really deeply rooted into Russian history. And also, the main reasons why I talk about NATO being not the problem is because NATO has been securitized so much by Russian officials and the narratives by Russians have really changed over the course of time. It's uh, aside from that famous interview where Putin broached about even joining the alliance in 2002, Ukraine viewed NATO as a sovereign uh, choice, potentially, for, for them to join when uh, Kuchma was looking into it. In 2004, the Baltic states joined NATO, and Russia was much more concerned about the color revolutions. And then now, when it was extremely remote that Ukraine was going to join NATO anytime soon, they used uh, this notion of a anti-Russia armed with the teeth on its borders as a pretext to invade. So it's a lot more driven by historical memory, by domestic factors, and also by Vladimir Putin's manipulation of those historical memories to create a long-term legitimacy and long-term legacy that endures beyond his rule. It's not necessarily about regime security in the short term or, or, or just preempting unrest in the short term or preempting a coup or preempting that. It's about its place in history. It's about uh, long-term uh, regime legitimacy and creating a system that outlasts them. I think that that's also part of what's going on here. And I explore some of those facets in my book. And also I explored them in my doctoral thesis before that. So this has been something I've been looking at for many years. Oh, well, thank you, Sam. I totally agree. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Really, I hear that. All right, let's go to Lexicon because I'm sorry, Dominic, you will have to uh, be patient because Lexicon had a question a little earlier and she had dropped away. Lexicon, please. Well, well similar to what uh, I guess it was Chris just now. Yeah, I wanted to go back to the book again. And uh, so you did, uh, and just now you did again, recap what your structure is of the book and uh, your, uh, your re um, rebuffing of that. Uh, of the Russian line, that security interest. So I just want we're looking at, okay, but now we are all... Alexa, you're, you're breaking up a bit for me. I don't know if you are for Sam. Do you want to start again? I can hear if you just bit, want yeah, to... Just start, start again, yeah. Yeah, let's just... Uh, is it okay? It is now. Um, just I to... think I know what it is. Samuel? Yeah, everyone, I can hear this, yeah. Samuel, you need when when she speaks. If you could press the mute button on your end, otherwise, there uh, 
exactly thank you that's the point because then it doesn't blank a lexicon on please lexicon repeat your question please yeah, just as Chris said, to come back to the book, your structure of it, I'm glad you debunk the uh, NATO uh, threat argument. And can we just take you along then? Can you take us along with the, as the book uh, plays out? We're all convinced, of course, that Russia is going to, that uh, Russia is going to receive a drubbing at Ukraine's hands. And how do you see what will uh, emerge um, and how Europe's going to, Europe and NATO are going to react to this as Russia begins to look very shaky and uh, un unknown, an unseen unknown for them? Well, definitely, yeah. Obviously, a successful Ukrainian counteroffensive is going to uh, really uh, change uh, a lot of paradigms uh, over here with regards to Ukraine's uh, place within European uh, security and economic institutions. And uh, I, think, uh, I think I mentioned earlier in the, in the talk uh, that Alex Reznikov was saying in his latest interview, that Ukraine is de facto a member of NATO, and also Ukraine is not just a country that's taking Western military assistance and taking Western arms, but we were talking about how Ukraine is doing a lot to actually uh, teach the uh, NATO countries lessons about how to deal with hybrid threats, how to deal with Russian aggression, how to deal with uh, these types of things. So Ukraine's standing and Ukraine's stature within the transatlantic security community, as well as within Europe, would greatly increase and greatly expand. But the question is, even a uh, very shaky uh, Russia or a defeated Russia, like uh, in, in the terms that's forced to either super peace under unfavorable conditions or sees itself expelled outright, uh, I don't know whether that's going to necessarily lead to massive political changes inside the, the Kremlin because Russia has framed this special military operation, as it calls it, so ambiguously that it can kind of declare victory on very uh, nefarious terms. It can basically say, that we uh, kind of liquidated many of the so-called uh, Nazi battalions, as they call them, like you know the Azov and Mariupol. They'll make up these uh, things. We demilitarize Ukraine every day. The Russian Defense Ministry talks about how they've destroyed all these uh, these air force capacities and uh, military assets and things like that. How we've achieved that goal? How we've deindustrialized Ukraine? We wreck its economy. We wreck its ability to really be that valuable for the for Europe and the West in the near term. And also, they can just say NATO came up against us. We were fighting against a much more powerful adversary, and we held our own very well. And I think that, you know, the Putin can still spin the propaganda in such a way that even a humiliating defeat may not look like a humiliating defeat to Russians, and the threat of Russian revanchism will still linger. So I think it's really important that Ukraine, one, number one, gets welcomed into the transatlantic community, but number two, we don't get too cocky and too overconfident about uh, a defeated Russia and uh, ignore the fact that uh, this revanchism is cyclical and it's going to come back again. So we need to be very prepared for it and we need to be not letting our feet off the gas pedal. All righty. Doman. Thank you, Axel. Uh, good evening, Samuel. Uh, this is, uh, is going to sound like it was set up, but uh, <laughs> the last thing you said, Samuel, um, I'm curious about what your thoughts are on building resilience and how resilience can be built in societies, especially societies in the West. Uh, we see that different societies have responded w to different degrees well to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Some are more susceptible to, to Russian uh, influence operations, uh, information warfare, etc., others less. Beyond the answer that everybody gives, which is education, 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 um, what can be done and how can we best build up resilience, especially to scaremongering approaches by Russia, such as the 
constant threat of nuclear warfare and other awful things that they can do. There's a lovely list uh, the other day circulating around Twitter. Every single nuclear threat that Russian officials have made that was reported by Reuters, and it was about 30 or 40 lines deep. No boy who cried wolf much, yet for some societies it works far too well. It definitely, obviously, a nuclear threat rhetoric uh, does uh, work extremely well. So maybe these, perhaps the only way in which to counter that, and the most effective way to counter that and build resilience, is to really stop, reframe our discussions about uh, security policy and really be very critical uh, about using the word escalation or talking about escalation risks. Like we know we see the Germans uh, very often using that in a pretty loose leaf and a loose-lipped way. And that has kind of uh, played into the hands of uh, the Russians over the course of time. We even see that with American officials with regards to long-range missiles and F-16s and other things really kind of sometimes uh, slip into that, uh, that, that, that paradigm and that, that movement. So I think that we should just be very careful when we're using the word escalatory. That's one thing in our communications in our media. Like, how is it really escalatory, for example, to Ukraine, for Ukraine to launch a strike onto Russian territory, onto Russian military infrastructure when the Russians are launching so many strikes illegally on uh, Ukrainian civilians at exactly the same time. Like, how was the drone strike on uh, on Putin or, or the Kremlin, even if Ukraine, uh, which is denied it, had done that, really more escalatory than what Russia just was doing in Uman or Pavlograd or in, uh, uh, in Kurzon on the very same day. So I think that we should uh, be just uh, very careful how we frame these things and uh, not really just uh, as politicians and as officials fall into the trap and repeat their propaganda and uh, promote their scaremongering. The, the less we promote their scaremongering, the less oxygen we give it in the media and the foreign policy establishment, the more we'll be able to uh, quiet that down and neutralize that ability, their threat, and their, their ability to, to do that. We've already kind of hopefully eviscerated the notion that Russia is the second army in the world and the conventional military power. We have to do the same with some of their asymmetric threats. And also, we also should be uh, like mindful but realistic, too, about what Russia can actually, uh, how Russia can actually project power and project influence. And we've seen also in the cyber sphere a lot of limitations for them, a lot of vulnerabilities for them compared to where we thought they would be at this stage. But that brings us also uh, yet again to the point that um, the many narratives which have been in, uh, inserted into the Western mind by undisputed, often unchallenged portrayals soft media portrayal um these the we now have the time but also the obligation and the opportunity therefore to debunk them very quickly um, uh, that it's not just about nato there are so many different cultural aspects to it but in terms of security it still seems to be the case that the fear-mongering that european capital assets could be threatened the fear-mongering that nuclear power uh, is a risk, a civil nuclear power is a risk, and we should be getting rid of it, that um, uh, nuclear strikes could occur, that the tactical nuclear weapons would allow uh, Russia to freeze the conflict. All of this garbled mess is still being floated about. It, we've now tried here since 436 days to shake up industry leaders, the normal general population, everybody who's interested, journalists, generals, historians, we've brought experts, people like you here to the space, and we've conveyed the notion. We've had, I don't know, 108,000 
listeners to our podcasts in the in recent history. We've disseminated the information 24-7, and it has had impact. We've had feedback from all sorts of television newscasts. Some of our moderators are being asked, just like you, step to Al Jazeera. Our friend Tim Sennett today had to speak to TRT yet again, friends from Istanbul. And that's fine, but it still seems to me that in the general media, whenever I open a piece of media, it doesn't really matter whether it is switching on the radio or uh, looking at a, briefly at a television program, which I find abhorrent by now, or even opening um, trusted newspapers. I still see, for example, maps quoted in certain very relevant newspapers in Europe, which so, uh, showcase so-called pro-Russian separatist areas. Now, that is a narrative which is completely and utterly tosh. What do we do? How do we get this further into, say, in the front of mind? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the pro-Russian separatist narrative is something that's been a long, long time uh, problem that long predates this current war, right? Depicting figures like, you know, Pushilin or Zakharchenko or, or Gherkin or any of these figures as somehow, you know, organic uh, uh, supporters of uh, pro-Russian unrest and not uh, being backed directly by the Russian intelligence services to uh, cause acts of sabotage and to create an insurgency and a movement. I think we should be calling them for what they for what they actually are. I mean, we should be calling them insurgents. We should be calling them terrorists. If they were uh, doing the same kind of thing in Middle East or Africa or many other parts of the world, we would be calling them in those terms. But somehow when it's happening in Europe and it's happening with them, we kind of sugarcoat it and we push that back. I mean, absolutely, that is a heart of, uh, of the narrative uh, framing because that plays into the idea that somehow this is in part a civil war in Ukraine that external powers are getting involved into. That really supports the uh, proxy war narrative that, uh, that that's just predominating among many, many, many areas, particularly you know, in the far right and the far left. And uh, also uh, in the uh, in the global south, I mean, that, that narrative is very predominant. I was just in South Africa about a month ago, and, and that was what everybody was, uh, was talking about, and it was quite interesting. So the thing is, if we're going to try to communicate to uh, non-Western countries and try to get them to see to, to move towards our position in terms of like seeing this as a war of aggression and taking that seriously, we have to, first of all, kind of cleanse and uh, kind of clarify our information space at home inside the West in terms of dealing with this. And uh, it's especially important for countries like Hungary or countries like Bulgaria or countries within the EU framework that may not have RT and Sputnik now, but have local media outlets and local surrogates really promoting these narratives on a very, very mainstream and regular basis. That's uh, that's another thing that's a concerning thing. And also, there's this problem with false equivalencies, right? Like, basically, we're seeing a situation where Russian defense ministry claims still about the war, even about how they're advancing on Kupiansk and Zaporizhia and and, uh, and, and, and uh, how they're liquidating so much Ukrainian equipment and, uh, like, basically showing this as unbridled success, make it into Reuters, they make it into other uh, Western media outlets uh, without any kind of critical assessment or any kind of pushback beyond just a standard uh, comment at the bottom that we can't necessarily independently verify that. So there's, there's a problem a, with that Samuel, too, right? That's the other thing that's the problem, right? That war is being yeah, portrayed off with them Samuel, leading the narrative. You just said Reuters. This is a very good point. We had this discussion here last year because the opening of Reuters and Bloomberg as information platforms conveying, however, an editorial position as well, over the past years is one thing, but it has led many people to be able to access them directly as opposed to what was in the past, many past. When David and I were young, the model, 
Now, the reason why I'm highlighting this is because of, they have started over the many years <clears throat> because it was difficult for them to operate editorial positions because the, the business is cutthroat. Digitization stole away a lot of their subscription business and a lot of the, the, the media, say, funding calculus, the budgeting had changed, the business model, the economics, everything changed. So what did they do? They created an aggregator service. Quite literally, what Reuters has with its media market is nothing else than aggregating news sources from all over the world. Now, as we both know, there's a number of news sources, not just the Russians, but also from, name it, Uzbekistan, <laughs> Mongolia, and China, you wouldn't necessarily want to trust. But still, Reuters, in order to be showing themselves to be local and therefore getting the right data right on time, have chosen to just portray this aggregated, but they do feed it to all of their unsuspecting retail media customers just as well. And that is the insidious part because obviously that is like, uh, <clears throat> that's an open gate for Trojan horses. And this is where I find it astonishing that then of course the more serious media uh, sources continue to propagate this because they take it from Reuters, they take it from Bloomberg and then accelerate it through. And when they're not taking it from them, they take it from blogs or from um, say tertiary media online sources somewhere in the United States. Whenever the Russians want to seed uh, some kind of narrative easily for something which is not, e which is, shall we say, not perfectly reviewed, Putting it over and across the pond so that it reverberates the next day back into Europe is the perfect way of setting the narrative straight. And then you have it in Italian media, you have it translated into French, into Spanish, and the likes in German, and everybody gobbles down this fire hose of shit. It seems that there's no editorial control left within the newspapers or within our television news media to actually think. Critical thinking has come under, I mean, literally has been driven over by cars left, right, and center. How do we how do we get this out in front? Because this is exactly what David, Alan, Doman, we all here constantly contest with. We do nothing else here. 24-7, we do debunking. I mean, you, you can dial in any time of the day, Samuel. We uh, we, we sit here when we're not having an interview segment with a good and appreciated guest just like you, we, we have our tentacles everywhere worldwide and we'll take in data and we'll dissect it. And we have um, regular contributors, guest speakers, analysts from all walks of life. We all have done our thing in some shape or form. And then we have military analysts. We have uh, some participants who are fantastic missile experts and who can immediately dissect whether something like that would actually work if something is shown. It seems to me that the commonsensical mind is not represented anymore in the media and the rest of the passive consumers are failing to apply critical thinking because they simply lack the time. Am I wrong or is that just a cultural subtrend which makes it easier for authoritarians to manipulate us? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that a lot of those, they, as you say, first of all, the concept of aggregation is exactly a big problem. Because the aggregation in authoritarian states always seems to be aggregating from the state-run outlets, right? It's the aggregation that's coming from Tass and Xinhua. It's not coming from independent media outlets. You're not seeing in Russia, 
like uh, Doge and uh, Le Magazine before the war or other kinds of uh, outlets like this that are Moscow Times or whether that have more objective coverage of these uh, conflicts, but are also based in those countries, getting that kind of aggregation and getting that kind of hearing. So we, we, we're aggregating propaganda. And Bloomberg also is in some ways uh, doing this too, I think in particular in terms of the aggregation of uh, data on Russian economic statistics, right? Russian statistics coming directly from Rostat, then those Rostat statistics somehow get uh, blurred in with IMF estimates, and it becomes like a completely kind of laundered uh, set of, uh, of views on how the uh, Russian economy is performing. I think it was really interesting to see that chart recently, which shows that the Russian economy has a lower chance of, uh, of recession than uh, any uh, other G7 country except Japan, except for the fact that it already is in what we would consider to be a recession with multiple quarters of consecutive negative growth already. So, uh, yeah, maybe it wasn't the depression that we predicted uh, at the start of the war, but certainly it's not uh, in, a, in, a good, in a good shape. So the problem in business and economic papers is a problem also with this kind of uh, regurgitation and aggregation of state-run rather than independent outlets that I think is a big concern. And absolutely, with regards to what you were just saying about defense and missiles and how these things can work, there's this kind of myth of Russian escalation that I'm trying to call out quite often on my Twitter feed and often in interviews as well right now, that Russia can somehow escalate this war in ways that can change the frontline dynamic much more than it already can, aside from, you know, doing something apocalyptic, like using uh, like using nukes. In reality, I mean, they, these all threats about striking decision-making centers or striking railway hubs or disabling the Ukrainian power grids and financial systems and things like this have been either misguided because of the strength of our, their defense systems, or have been completely debunked by the fact that uh, they tried to disable the power grids in Ukraine for so many months, and then look look where look where they are. Ukraine's now electricity exporter, right? So this notion that Russia can somehow escalate this war much, much more than it already can, or it's, it's not fighting with its full potential, is also seeping into the uh, analyses of the uh, military situation, and is uh, creating a lot of uh, un uh, uncertainty that kind of plays into their advantage, too. Yeah, they can't be taken seriously. I mean, for anyone and everyone who's ever in any shape or form had, um, shall we say, had to uh, act in a sensibly large business or in a, trans a transnationally active business environment or military environment, had to make decisions and look at look things coldly in the eye. None of what the Russians portray makes sense. It doesn't in any shape or form, um, hold steady in the cold light of the day. And that is the interesting part, because it only takes typically two, three minutes of calm, detached review and thinking, and most of these narratives fall apart. And I wonder why, I wonder why, um, everybody goes for the lemon tree. No, but seriously, I wonder why people do not find it in themselves to do so. Let me ask my colleague, Alan, who's been a journalist for all his life and who's been with us you know, for many months and moderating what he thinks about it. Alan, you had a question. I, I did have a question. It, it's not so much about the quality of journalism uh, we see, but I am wondering about Sam's take uh, on, what I'm, on Russian influence and how we measure it. Uh, now, I know it's very symbolic tomorrow, what nations are attending uh, King Charles' coronation? Russia, uh, pointedly absent. May 9th, the Victory Day Parade in Russia, equally important for Putin. Uh, how is that playing out? Who's invited? Uh, who is pointedly absent? I saw that uh, 
only the president of Kyrgyzstan, to the best of my knowledge, uh, is among the uh, the the states from uh, Central Asia uh, attending. Well, what what does this tell us, Sam? Yeah, it's definitely a sign of uh, Russian isolation because those victory parades were not so long ago, even when uh, Dmitry Medvedev was uh, was president and before the war in 2014, were really a gathering a place for many international leaders uh, to discuss the Second World War. I mean, yeah, it's interesting that it's just Kyrgyzstan who's coming. I mean, the, I know that Putin made an, uh, a plea through uh, his channels to Emomali Rakhman from Tajikistan, and uh, that was announced earlier this afternoon. It appears as if Tajikistan hasn't, uh, at least as of when I last checked, conclusively accepted it and is considering the offer. So the very fact that one of the countries that's probably the most dependent on Russia economically in the post-Soviet space, and uh, arguably the world, is not willing to send its president to uh, the, the main night uh, parade, or is at least hedging on it, it really just shows where things stand for, for Russia right now. It's very, very uh, uh, vulnerable in terms of uh, its, uh, it's in the fact that not many countries are voting maybe to, to sanction Russia, but that doesn't mean that there's many countries that want to stand with Russia either. So the sparse attendance in the main ice parade is looking like the UNGA votes, where it's just Nicaragua, Eritrea, Syria, North Korea, Belarus, who are kind of standing with them, right? How significant is it that Kazakhstan is not attending? Well, that is a very significant uh, thing, I think. And also, it was pretty noteworthy that yesterday, in the head of all of this, Kazakhstan actually passed a, an agreement about blocking parallel imports. And that was something that the Ukrainians were really pushing. It was actually a, a tweet uh, yesterday from Andrew Yermak, right, who was just uh, praising Kazakhstan's policy. And that followed, obviously, some uh, a push over the past months from the United States on second potential secondary sanctions against Kazakhstan, looking into the potential re-exports. Kazakhstan made a pledge early on in the war that it wouldn't act as a sanctions violator, even though they're part of the Eurasian uh, Customs Union. And now they seem to be taking some action on that. Kazakhstan's trying to, you know, obviously export oil towards uh, Germany and towards the West, much against the disapproval of, of Russia. And uh, they're continuing to uh, vote in the United Nations in ways that don't uh, that either abstain or do, do not support Russia or even supporting it at one point reparations for Russia uh, being, being, being paid out. So that's a longstanding trend, and it follows a series of other developments on or around May 9th that would be very concerning from the Russian side. And, and even though the West must do everything it possibly can to isolate Russia uh, internationally, it seems to me that Putin is doing a fine job isolating Russia himself. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like the biggest, uh, what biggest NATO expansion more than Russian aggression, right? And uh, Finland and Sweden be now becoming into the alliance, right? Uh, it's uh, interesting uh, to see that the same thing happens internationally. Like, I think that one of the tools that Russia used in terms of disinformation was that, in some ways, was uh, it's not it's not really about winning hearts and minds. It's not really about uh, necessarily, uh, you know, projecting influence in a hybrid offensive fashion. Disinformation and Russia's messaging and Russia's communications have often been somewhat defensive in nature. Like, they basically want to create feedback loops where surrogates in the West and surrogates outside repeat narratives that can be translated and channeled back domestically. So domestic propaganda is believed more by their own people. They want to create polarizations in the international system between the West and the global South to make it look like it's the West against the rest and Russia's championing the rest. And when the, the global South countries don't sanction Russia over Ukraine, it looks like that, 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 that argument is winning. But they really aren't necessarily winning hearts and minds and winning soft power. 
they're merely just at a very base level, probably creating a, a, a layer or a barrier of protection against total isolation. But that's not winning the information war. That's just uh, not completely losing it. Thank you very much, Sam. And I'm looking forward to picking up your new book as soon as, as it's available in the U.S. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it's actually available on Blackwell's to order. But it's on a discount now, so feel free to pick it up. And then on online, yeah. Always on our mind. <laughs> yeah, you can order it online shipping, but it's there. Yeah. No, you're right. And it's uh, on problem. Kindle, so. <laughs> Somebody's got to live. Come on. Uh, Plotman, you had a question. Oh, yes. Um, thank you, Axel. Um, I just wanted to uh, quickly um, remark two things. One, um, the um, uh, the media mentioned in Bulgaria and a couple of other uh, Central Eastern European, European countries. This is um, not the usual media bias, bias you would see in, in, in uh, Western Europe. These, these medias are actually quite openly bought and uh, uh, quite uh, sort of systematically peddling Russian propaganda. Um, so this is something uh, quite uh, different to the usual feedback loops and people being forced to or aggregating news. This, this is very intentional. So I think that's more um, a case for the prosecution office than for informational warfare. Um, and the second uh, comment I just want to make is um, the the global south. Um, it, it, it appears that people are not pointing out very clearly that the, the war of Russia in Ukraine is actually a colonial war, colonial war of, of um, immense um, size and, and um, that what Russia is trying to do is is actually a war of aggression colonization. Um, some some ideas which should be well known to the global south. And I wonder why this is not, you know, explained and, and, and publicized in, in, let's say, in wider circles, if you like. Thank you. I like, uh, with respect to the uh, global south question, just like that, to bring that up. Absolutely. I think that, you know, the fact that it's not really framed in colonial terms is uh, really uh, surprising and interesting to me. And like, it was just uh, remarkable how when Kenya's UN ambassador, right, Kamani, right, before the war, uh, just before the war started, after the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic's recognitions, uh, was talking about how uh, the, the Russia is acting in a new imperial and neocolonial fashion. The very fact that we saw Kamani actually get pushed back from Kenyan media commentators. It was actually an op-ed in Al Jazeera English by a Kenyan media commentator that really ripped into his speech and into the, uh, the, the nature that he was calling Russia colonial by talking about Western neocolonialism and incels and kind of creating equivalencies and then double standards and, and things like that that the Russians uh, always like to do. Just really, really uh, uh, it was, was quite striking. And the fact that Kamani's narrative was not really picked up elsewhere on the continent in any kind of a meaningful way is also uh, noteworthy, and it's uh, and it's there, and it's remarkable when I was interviewing uh, officials in countries that are close to uh, Russia, how they frame their relationship. For example, I was talking to a communications advisor for my book, uh, to uh, Augustine Tuadera, the president of the Czech Czechoslovakian Republic, and I asked him, so uh, why do you think that Russia is is less uh, neo-colonial than France is when uh, Russia seized uh, your 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 mining resources through Wagner? In, in diamonds and gold in a way that was much more overt than France did during Operation Sangaris 
or has done currently with its uh, relatively uh, minimal intervention since then. And he was like, you know, but the, the placebo since African Republic, we, we, we invited Russia in. We made a decision to bring them in. The French kind of imposed themselves. So we're exerting our independence and exerting our sovereignty by somehow bringing the Russians in. And it seems like a really limp and a really kind of a, a weak narrative when an autocrat is talking about how they need, they, who doesn't have any other options, he's talking about we need a protection from someone and Wagner steps in. And that's why Russia is not colonial and, and France is. But unfortunately, these kinds of narratives are permeating. And it's just really, really uh, disappointing to see the uh, countries like India also, like that, who have suffered under colonial history and have this, uh, not really call out the colonial aspect of this war, but instead promote the alternative uh, proxy war narrative that's uh, and, and really publicizing and amplifying that wherever they can. Thank you very much. Thank you. Dalman, you have a follow-up? Um, somewhat, yeah. So, Sam, I'm curious how you see, uh, with, with, with all of this extra attention, of course, being put on Russia that hasn't been there previously, especially their influence operations, but also, uh, let's say, their, uh, quote-unquote, undersea research operations in the sort of places that are just about to get some wind farms or the sort of places that have lots of cables and pipelines under the sea, and that being a lot more of a focus and being brought more to the forefront of not just intelligence services and um, uh, defense uh, security apparatus, but of course also the public. Um, how has this, or why has this, and have all these revelations, especially say the ones from the Nordics over the last uh, three or four weeks, why has this not been enough to say uh, across Europe, um, you know, for, for, for societal moods to change and be like, no, actually, Russia isn't just an enemy of Ukraine and a problem for us. It's actually actively acting as an enemy of the entire Western world. We cannot possibly work with them because they will never work with us in good faith. How, how is there still so much willful ignorance? And what do you think needs to happen, or rather, what needs to be done for this willful ignorance, but at a, both at a broad societal level as well as in some cases at you know quite quite high levels, um, to to be broken, uh, if revelations like this just weren't enough. Well, I mean, I guess if you're talking about the undersea cable issue and like what's been coming through, you just mentioned that that was good to see that there's now some alarm or some corrections or some movements from that coming from NATO, because it's been clear that, you know, the offensive cyber capacity, either due to concerns about uh, potential uh, deterrence uh, from Western countries supplying it, or the fact that we overestimated some of their capabilities to start with, hasn't really panned out that these threats are actually, you know, uh, more real and more tangible in terms of sabotage. So I'm happy to see a movement uh, over there. But like it's, the discussions on this are a little bit too early on right now, and it, we haven't seen enough of it really codifying at the NATO, EU, and U.S. level. So I mean, I, I'm hesitant to really make a very conclusive uh, set of judgments or prescriptions here until we see exactly how this threat is being uh, is being dealt with uh, more more thoroughly by multilateral bodies and by other governments. Which brings us back to one big thing, and that is, in recent days, yet again. Thanks to the um, messaging, so to say, the icing on the cake by Mr. Nikolai Patrushev, 
we've just been reintroduced to their use of strategic communication of their um, overall aims, as well as to an extent, part of what uh, he states, of course, he will believe in, but there's a lot of tosh in it as well. Patrushev yet again indicted the West for fighting Russia, that Russia were to stand there to defend Christian values, that it, uh, the heartland theory, we are back to Mackinder. I mean, seriously, it's, it's astonishing what we have to suffer through when they come with their boatload of crap. But projecting that perfidious Albion and the United States were with together with, of course, now comes Jewish money, uh, trying to denigrate, derogate, and uh, um, destroy Russia. If he only believes 5% of what he portrays, both for his domestic audience as well as for foreign followers, Mr. Patrushev is a dangerous man. He always has been, but he's a dangerous man in terms of how he knows to manipulate the communication and set the tone. Putin knows what's what. Patrushev knows what's what. They do believe part of it. Yes, they do believe that they they have this kind of um, seminal superiority complex. They These guys we cannot deal with other than contain them. What other option do we have? How do you see how the West would, after Ukraine wins, deals with them? Because they may still remain in power. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that was a really fascinating uh, interview that Patrick just gave to address here. And I translated the uh, main points from it on my uh, Twitter feed a few days ago. Just for people who weren't familiar with the whole argument that he made, basically, he comes to the uh, argument that uh, the driver of uh, uh, of this kind of Russophobia or this kind of uh, anti-Russian obsession of coming from the West really comes from trying to control heartland Eurasia. Like as Axel just said, it's like a re, uh, re kind of appropriation of the uh, Mackinder theory. And it's done that through a variety of ways. Like, I mean, like after the, uh, the, through the Cold War and then after the end of the Cold War, through systematically trying to humiliate Russia on the international stage and deprive it of international agency with the end goal of removing Russia from the UN Security Council, from supporting uh, neo-Nazi movements around the uh, across Europe from trying to uh, drive a wedge between Ukraine and Russia and like kind of split, you know, the, the historic uh, Russian uh, uh, kind of countryside. All these things are are like seen as in, in lists over here. Britain is somehow seen even in the modern day to be somehow as a kind of like a, like a co-aggressor with the United States. So the influence of Britain is greatly inflated. He, his explanation for sanctions policy was even more interesting. He says that basically, you know, Russia's been under sanctions ever since uh, the British stole the gold from the Soviet Union or from the Russian Empire, rather, after the uh, in the early 1920s. So he kind of comes up with, uh, with that kind of uh, assertion and that kind of claim. And then he kind of uh, basically just uh, c- concludes that, you know, the heartland theory will uh, come to pass because, uh, yeah, ironically, maybe, because the Yellowstone volcano is going to blow up. And uh, the Amer- North America is going to be uninhabitable. The only places that are going to be habitable is Eastern Europe and Siberia. And that's why the West needs to control Eurasia, because they know that their time is limited where they live. So it's crazy. It's unhinged. <laughs> and maybe the last part is kind of uh, the hyperbole. But it's the point. This is a worldview that's, that, that's unfortunately there. And it's uh, become mainstream in a lot of propaganda about this notion that Russia is going to be 
divided and uh, and decolonized uh, for its resources, right? And even Putin talks about that. You know how they want to create, you know, like a, a, a mural or like you know, Yakutia, different we listen to different regions, right? Just like that in an interview to Russian domestic audiences and normalize that too, is like seriously, Samuel. We all need to pack. Evidently, there's no <laughs> that we can't be safe otherwise. I mean, we know that Russia, if if you the, uh, the UK doesn't behave, will sink the UK anyway with one of its absolutely great missiles, probably with red mercury on board, and sink it in the sea. But uh, of course, the US is doomed. We can only live in Eurasia under the good rule of the benevolent Tsar. What should yeah. I say? Exactly. Um, yeah. I, I feel inclined to do so. I, I should. I should go across to my wonderful Tatar spouse and to tell her that there's no alternative. We have to go east. David. Yeah, so I've, I've got a question. I want to take you back a little bit to uh, to South Africa, if I can, uh, Sam. How do you think it's going to play out, uh, uh, you know, Russia and um, uh, South Africa is going to play out now that uh, Russia's decided to make um, uh, Ukraine their version of Spion Cop? Uh, and a hill to die on, right? Yeah, so are you, when you're talking about South Africa, are you referring to the whole issue surrounding with the ICC? And everything, that how they link in and how they're clearly they've, uh, well, within uh, certainly within South African government, they've got quite a bit of sway somewhere. Um, yeah. Whether okay, that's... Yeah, I can explain that pretty well. So, sorry, I can explain that well. Yeah, like, uh, I mean, I think that uh, Russia obviously has been cultivating South Africa uh, and the uh, current ANC government uh, on its w view of international affairs for quite a long time. And that follows through from the anti-apartheid struggles that we saw uh, in the Soviet Union uh, having those legacies, and also the Soviet Union resisting apartheid South Africa and Angola, and then channeling those legacies into the late 1990s. An early example was obviously Nelson Mandela and Boris Yeltsin forming a kind of common ground against the United States' uh, intervention in Kosovo, the NATO intervention in Kosovo, back in the 1990s. And then synergistic positions on subsequent crises like Iraq, Syria, Venezuela, uh, sanctions on Iran, and many other uh, other other topics for Russia and South Africa found common cause against this kind of uh, hegemonism and unilateralism uh, from the United States and from the West. And also we started seeing the creation and the strengthening of personal relationships between Russian and South African officials, in particular Patrushev and his color revolutions narratives appear to be getting a hearing inside uh, South African authorities, the South African Defense Ministry, uh, uh, with, uh, got, uh, grew tighter towards uh, the Russians. We're seeing Durko often like, really promote the uh, kind of uh, proxy war narratives coming out, which is you know, also involved more in public diplomacy and foreign affairs. And uh, that culminated, obviously, in some of the developments that we've seen recently, like South Africa's alleged um, involvement potentially in secondary sanctions violations and the Operation Mosey drills that we saw between Russia and China and South Africa in the Indian Ocean that caused so much controversy in the United States, so much so that the U.S. was actually thinking about putting the relationship with South Africa under review. So Russia has co-opted South African institutions with its view of international affairs and with shared grievances for about a quarter century now. And now we're seeing that really come to the fore with uh, Cyril Ramaphosa becoming a key spokesperson for a lot of the Russian propaganda narratives and everything from the NATO proxy war to food security in this current uh, conflict in this current zone. Uh, with respect to like uh, my, my choosing trip there, I was there for a few days in Pretoria in late March, and uh, it was it was it was very very interesting to see almost everyone refer to the conflict as the Ukraine Russia war, 
or like not deny the fact that, you know, the word aggression or invasion was basically almost never used. And that's kind of indicative of what you're saying. With regards to the ICC, though, and the issue with that, I think that the South Africans are towing a very delicate line over there. The response from Jerko when I was there basically said that um, we will uh, we will abide by our commitments to the Rome Statute, but we haven't made a firm decision on what to do with the invocation of Vladimir Putin. Then we saw Ramaphosa allegedly claim that he was going to withdraw from the ICC. They realized that legally and constitutionally inside South Africa, that may not be possible. So he had to walk that back. And now it looks like I think we're moving more and more in a direction. I've had to make a prediction that we're going to move towards the virtual attendance of Putin or Putin sending Lavrov or someone else to the, to the summit. I'm thinking that it's uh, less likely that, that he's actually going to come in person like the, what they did with uh, Omar al-Bashir. I mean, it's possible because Bashir was transported through military vehicles and through some loophole that they created that was quasi-legal. And they might do the same thing for Putin, but I don't know whether Putin is going to uh, take the risk. He's so afraid of COVID and sitting at a long table. I don't think he's going to take the risk of getting arrested. So I'm going to follow up uh, with that. So how do you think now that uh, the, let's just say that the uh, uh, the, uh, the the fall of the Russian uh, economy is going to carry on? There's no reason for it isn't, and it's going to get worse. So with their there, as that goes on, they'll have a any an inability to pay some of the bills they've got in uh, South Africa. How do you think that will play out as a result of the lack of the flow of money? Let's call it that. Yes. Of the flow of money from from who exactly? From Russia to South Africa. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think that uh, economically, I mean, the the, the, the partnership uh, is is like you know within BRICS and within it is uh, is this is, is has some significance and has had some development and growth. Obviously, it was the only probably consistent growth uh, partnership for the Russian economy over the course of the past three decades, even during the nineteen nineties. When Russia was disengaging from the continent, they were still the Andrei Kozarev, foreign minister, was still trying to build bridges over there. And then we saw Putin uh, visit there in the, in the early 2000s and like 2006, I believe. So, you know, there, there's been a long standing history there. There is obviously Russian presences and Russia trying to gain itself into the mining sector, though I think it's it's seen more of uh, traction from Al Rosa actually in the Angolan diamond sector, which now is being called into question in sanctions. They've, they've been looking at projects more recently, like trying to invest in liquefied natural gas there. But, you know, again, it's like those infrastructure projects that we talked about in the previous hour. Like, I mean, they, they, don't, they don't go anywhere. So it's, uh, I don't think that the economic side of the relationship is really what's uh, binding them together or is really a problem for one or the other. It's really a lot more, I think, about this kind of share uh, of grievances and non-material stuff that's really driving this partnership. Uh, thank you very much, Sam. All righty. Well, Samuel, thank you very much. That was quite a ride today. Yet again, I have to say, very much appreciate also that you came back for the second segment. That has been uh, tremendous. We should do this again. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to do it again. And just uh, thank you so much for having the opportunity to speak with you all. And I uh, hope you guys, if you will pick it up, you enjoy the book. Absolutely. Okay. And uh, yeah, everybody, if you haven't checked it out quite yet, Samuel has been writing and publishing two books recently. Both of them are quite topical in this regard, both in regard to the influence of Russia in Africa, as well as on the current warfare. So please uh, go to his profile, give him a like, give him a follow, and we will be in touch soon. Samuel, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Axel. Bye-bye. Cheers. All right. Bye-bye.